Good evening. You are listening to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. And we are excited to present our episode on Psycho. Thank you for listening to us today. Thank you for listening. I was trying to do a bit of an Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm-hmm. I don't think it worked, but... No, no, you're good. You're okay. good. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, how are you doing, Ben? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, this is the most research and work I've put into an episode for a while. Yeah. Like, which is not to say that I've been slacking or anything, but just that, like, uh, I, I think it was, like, three work days of research, uh, for me, uh, going into this episode. Yes, I would have to agree. It's, as you said, it's not because we've been slacking, it's because we've been covering B- schlock movies yeah and uh this is a major movie it's a big deal it's a big deal it's a key inflection point for like the entire horror genre like there's kind of before psycho and after psycho interesting um so you've never seen psycho yes as i uh yes i've never seen psycho i know what happens i know the twists um i've seen many a scene Mm -hmm. um just from being in film classes and also living in the world i've seen a documentary that is just on the shower scene so like i know of it but i've never like sat down to watch it which is kind of like a weird predicament yeah yeah uh it's it's not for any particular reason it's just like you just never get around to it so the thing about psycho is in all honesty it's very hard for Psycho to have some of the effect it once had because of the fact that it became so famous that its twists became widely known to the point where like most people know what the twists in the story are even without seeing the movie mm-hmm. like like you and even without like going to film studies classes or anything like just living in the culture so it's really hard to recreate the original impact of the movie. If somehow, dear listener, you've both never seen Psycho and don't know what happens in it and don't know the twists, go... Turn this off and yeah. go watch it. Yeah, go watch it now rather than at the typical point in the episode where you're supposed to go watch the movie because this is going to be a spoiler-filled episode kind of from beginning to end because it's just too difficult to talk about the movie without talking about all of it. By the way, how are you doing today, Sarah? <laughs> I'm excited. Um, yeah, I didn't have as much research as you, but it was still quite a bit for what I'm typically covering. Uh, yeah, I'm ready to get into it. So Psycho is the first film on the list that we are watching from director Alfred Hitchcock. Do we want to talk about that? Yes. You're about to talk about that. Yeah. Awesome. Because, you know, he is considered like a horror director, yet you and I are on the same page that all of his movies up to this point have been thrillers. That's right. And his reputation as a horror director comes from this movie. Um, He was not considered a horror director before this movie. And indeed, this movie was seen as like 
beneath him or like slumming by critics of the time due Mm. to the like low esteem that horror, you know, was regarded in. Right. Um, so yeah, like he was a thriller director and he was also a very well-known, very successful, big name director at this point. It's not like this is a guy who'd done a couple little movies and then did psycho like psycho today is probably Alfred Hitchcock's most well-known movie. Like, for the average person on the street, if you were like, what's a Hitchcock movie? They're probably going to say Psycho. And it did. It changed his reputation to being like a horror guy. So I think if you don't really know anything about Alfred Hitchcock, like you might be tempted to think that like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He did like a few movies and then he did Psycho. But like, this is a guy who was already like a big name, big deal, household name, director with a lot of big successful pictures under his belt by the time he did this movie. I remember the first time I learned that he was filming in the silent era Mm -hmm. and I was like, what? Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So Alfred Hitchcock was born August 13th, 1899. He was the youngest son of a greengrocer and he was a sweet, well-behaved little boy with no friends. A very famous anecdote was uh, when he was a young boy, his father sent him to a police station with a little note, um, and the police read the note, and then they locked Alfred in a cell for several minutes uh, before letting him go. And this was meant to be a lesson from his father about like what happens to naughty boys, to show him like the consequences of being bad. And Hitchcock would later say that this gave him a lifelong fear of police, Uh, to the point where he didn't drive a car because he was afraid of being pulled over. Good job, Mr. Hitchcock. (laughs) Uh, Hitchcock's family moved around a lot, and so he bounced between various Catholic schools. Uh, The family was Roman Catholic. Um, He would later say that his sense of fear developed from the policy of these Jesuit-run schools to dole out corporal punishment at the end of the school day. So if you got in trouble, uh, you know, you'd be caught and they'd say like, okay, well, this is your punishment. So many hits with the ruler or whatever. But then you had to spend the whole day waiting for the punishment to come. Mm. A fascination with trains and timepieces led young Hitchcock to a desire to become an engineer. But when his father died in 1914, he had to get a job. Uh, to help support the family. So he became a technical clerk at the Henley Telegraph Company. Five years later, he was the founding editor of the company's in-house magazine, for which he wrote short stories. He also wrote copy for Henley's advertising department, and he became a big fan of movies around this time. Uh, His favorites were the films of Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, Buster Keaton, and Fritz Lang. Then he learned that Paramount was looking to start a London studio. So he gained employment there as a title card designer and soon found himself working a variety of jobs, um, kind of bouncing around the art department. Uh, You know, he wrote title cards. He was a props master, art director, production manager, co-writer. He even got to try his hand at directing, first on an unfinished project called Number 13, for which only a handful of scenes were shot before it was scuttled. And then next, finishing off a movie called 
Always Tell Your Wife from 1923 that the credited director had like lost interest in. So like Hitchcock <laughs> just directed the last few scenes that needed to be done. Sure. From there, Hitchcock was employed by the newly created Gainsborough Pictures uh, and put to work as an assistant director on the films of director Graham Cutts. He also served as set designer and co-writer on these films. And it was here that Hitchcock met editor and script supervisor Alma Reville, who he married in 1926. In 1925, Gainsborough founder Michael Balkin sent Hitchcock to Germany to direct two British-German co-productions, The Pleasure Garden and The Mountain Eagle. These productions were beset with numerous problems, and the films were not successful, uh, but Balkin believed that Hitchcock had potential, and the experience served as a valuable learning experience for the young man uh, as he got to observe German filmmaking technique. Returning to England, in 1927, Hitchcock directed what is considered by many to be the first real Hitchcock movie, the mm. first movie with all of his hallmarks, a thriller dominated by suspense with a blonde lead female character and a cameo appearance by the director. The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog, was a commercial and critical success. Uh, it was called the best film ever made in Britain at the time. What year is that again? 1927. Mm. Hitchcock married Reville in 1926, and their daughter Patricia was born in 1928, and Reville would go on to be a key collaborator in her husband's films as an editor and a writer, even if she wasn't always credited. She's frequently credited, but not all the time. Um, she would eventually come to work closely with her husband's secretary, Joan Harrison, who would then also go on to kind of become like a co-writer and associate producer with Hitchcock. In 1929, Hitchcock directed his 10th film, Blackmail, which was also the first British talkie. Mm -hmm. And in 1933, Hitchcock moved to Michael Balkin's new studio, Gamont British, where he directed the thriller The Man Who Knew Too Much, which brought Peter Lorre to English-speaking audiences, and then The 39 Steps, which popularized kind of the spy thriller genre, as well as Hitchcock's use of a plot device he called a MacGuffin, which is a thing in the story that everybody wants that drives the plot forward that isn't actually really important what it is. Uh, see, the Maltese Falcon, right. a great example. Classic example. Uh, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction is similar to this. There is a MacGuffin in Psycho. Mm-hmm. A series of popular and successful spy and crime thrillers followed, and by 1938, he was generally considered the best filmmaker working in Britain. Then-producer David Selznick... Selznick, our old friend... ...tempted Hitchcock to Hollywood with a four-picture deal at $40,000 per film. And that's in 1940. Yeah. Their first collaboration was 1940's Rebecca a gothic romance with a lavish $1.29 million budget, which scored a $6 million box office and won Best Picture at the Oscars with a Best Director nomination for Hitchcock. And over the course of the next few films, Hitchcock grew accustomed to the larger budgets and greater efficiency of the Hollywood system. But he frequently clashed with Selznick, who liked to exercise control over his projects and change things as he liked. Tellingly, Selznick once told someone that Hitchcock was the only director he trusted with a picture. Mm, it's probably more Hitchcock making moves so that Selznick couldn't 
Yes. Yeah. So to avoid Selznick's interference, Hitchcock carefully planned his movies, um, storyboarding everything, and then basically uh, shooting to the edit uh, with no coverage so that the picture could only be edited one way. So if you don't know what I mean by that, um, typically in a movie, like you'll shoot a wide shot of like all the characters together in the setting where you can kind of see everything. And then you'll move to like medium shots of one or two people and then like close ups of just one person speaking. And you'll kind of get the whole scene in these various shots and then you'll edit them together and you can kind of make choices about when do you want to cut to a close up and, and so on. And Hitchcock wouldn't do that. Like he would have the whole movie essentially edited already in his head and just shoot what he knew was going to be in the final picture. Um, So he would do alternate takes of those shots, but he wouldn't do alternate angles. Hitchcock's 1940s films in this period were a string of successes um, that, you know, continually pushed the boundaries of the thriller as a genre, inventing new techniques. Uh, Some of these films include Suspicion, uh, where he put a light in a glass of milk to draw the audience's attention to which glass was poisoned, and Shadow of a Doubt with Joseph Cotton, uh, which really plays with, like, just kind of the tension of being in a social situation with a murderer. Such a good movie. Guilty about being in Hollywood during the war, Hitchcock returned to the UK in 1943 and 1944 to produce propaganda films for the Ministry of Information. He also consulted on a documentary about the Holocaust using footage of the liberated concentration camps, which the British originally intended to show to the Germans. Um, after like the occupation started, but ultimately they decided against that and the documentary would not be seen until 1985. Hitch returned to Hollywood for his last... You just called him Hitch. Everyone calls him Hitch. Oh. So. Okay. If you didn't know that, everyone calls him Hitch. Well, I suppose it's better than just calling him cock. (laughs) So he returned to Hollywood for his last two films with Selznick, Spellbound, and Notorious. After this, he created his own production company, Transatlantic. His first independent picture was 1948's Rope, which was also his first picture in color. It's shot in 10 long takes designed to look like the whole movie was one long shot. Mm -hmm. It's really good and somehow also manages to not like both feel like a play, but not tedious like a play. Rope was mixed in its critical reception, partially due to its homosexual subtexts. And Transatlantic's second film, Under Capricorn, was a costly flop. And so Hitchcock had to return to black and white movies and working for Warner Brothers on smaller thrillers after that. In the mid-1950s, Hitchcock found a new muse, the young actress Grace Kelly, who would appear in a series of bigger budget color thrillers from Hitchcock, the first being his 3D film for Warner Brothers, Dial M for Murder. Then for Paramount, he shot Rear Window, starring Kelly and James Stewart, a taut thriller exploring the theme of voyeurism. Uh, To Catch a Thief in 1955 brought Kelly together with Cary Grant, who had already appeared for Hitch in Suspicion and Notorious. And these three color films saw Hitchcock return to critical and commercial success. Then Kelly married Prince Rainier of Morocco in 1956 and quit acting 
at the prince's request, leaving Hitch without his muse. Uh, Hitchcock was very upset about this. In 1955, CBS began airing Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an anthology series hosted by Hitchcock, who also directed 14 half-hour episodes in its first five seasons um, leading up to Psycho. Uh, I think he did 18 episodes total. Hitchcock was already a celebrity when he came to the United States, thanks to Selznick's like promotional media manipulation, I guess. Um, but the television show brought him into the homes of millions of Americans, presenting a persona of droll, macabre humor. I love this one where he's doing these exercises. He's like pulling these ropes on his hands and it's mm. like lifting up a guillotine. Yeah, very good. The show basically established a bunch of trademarks that would be associated with Hitchcock for the rest of his life. There's the theme music, which Hitchcock chose himself. There's his, like, silhouette drawing, which Hitchcock drew himself. And there was also just his manner of speaking, which made him as recognizable as any film star. A rare occurrence for directors in the 1950s. So, like, this is a guy that the average American knew by name. Yeah. The black and white television anthology series was highly popular and Hitchcock would come on to like introduce the story at the start of the episode and then like handle the commercial breaks and then at the end he would come back and these episodes would often end with Hitchcock explaining how the criminals who got away in the episode were actually later caught by police so like don't worry about it like law and order prevailed yeah yeah which was a uh, concession to American TV censors in 1956, Hitchcock remade his own film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, this time in color, starring James Stewart and Doris Day in kind of what probably was meant to be a role for Grace Kelly. In 1958, uh, he created perhaps his most psychologically personal film, the color thriller Vertigo, starring James Stewart and Kim Novak. The lead role was originally going to go to actress Vera Miles, uh, but she became pregnant and had to be replaced, earning Hitchcock's resentment. Oh, how dare you get pregnant when you're supposed to work on my movie? Yep. I hate it when directors are like this. This is That's the attitude. Yep. Today, Vertigo is regarded as one of the greatest films ever made, often neck and neck with Citizen Kane in critics' polls. But at the time, its complex plot and psychosexual themes left critics and audiences cold. After the disappointment of like his big masterpiece not really going over well, Hitchcock suffered another blow when his wife Alma was diagnosed with cancer. She survived after surgery, but the thought of living without her for the first time terrified him. His next project, North by Northwest in 1959, is an iconic big budget spy thriller starring Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint. The film cost $4.6 million in 1959. Yeah, but half of that went to so they, they could shoot on the big heads. <clears throat> but, set, <laughs> but the movie set box office records with a total $9.8 million gross mm -hmm. in 1959. Yeah. So by this time, Hitchcock had directed 47 feature films and he had developed a very distinctive style. He had been nominated four times for a Best Director Oscar and nominated for a Best Director Emmy for his TV series. Hitchcock's films use a style that mimics human gaze, 
turning the audience into voyeurs is a very sort of common mm. feature of his films. Do you know if he ever saw Peeping Tom? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. So. That'd be very curious. Mm-hmm. So it, it also sounds like his exploration of horror themes up to this point has mainly been on his TV show. Yes. Um, the TV show is like maybe closer to horror, but really Hitchcock's bread and butter was thriller films. And those thriller films kind of divided into usually two categories, spy movies or crime movies. And the crime movies often had murders in them. Um, and that was like as close to horror as we got, just like the presence of murder and violence. Yeah. Hitchcock regarded visual storytelling, such as in silent films as the purest form of cinema art and regarded terror and suspense films as a way of taking power back from the authority figures in his childhood who had terrified him. Hitchcock felt that the mark of good filmmaking was the ability to create a unified emotional response in an audience and directed all of his efforts to this aim. So the ability to make the whole audience feel fear at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, that suspense in his thrillers, yeah. Exactly. His films frequently turn on themes of mistaken identity, personalities torn between good and evil, doubles, lookalikes, and themes of sexual deviancy. After his mother's death in 1942, the mothers in his films became increasingly monstrous, and he frequently portrays villains as charming and likable, while authority figures and officers of the law are often more difficult and disagreeable. On a plot level, uh, there's often a MacGuffin to his stories, um, and his portrayal of female characters is a frequent focus of critical analysis, especially since Laura Mulvey's psychoanalytical essay in 1975 that introduced the concept of the male gaze into film critique. Which I, I kind of go into on our episode on uh, Peeping Tom. Yes, uh, but in short is simply the idea that uh, a male director like Hitchcock, you know, wants his films to echo human gaze and turn the audience into voyeurs, but there is an unspoken assumption that the gaze it is replicating is the gaze of a heterosexual man. Roger Ebert summed up the qualities of Hitchcock's female characters as follows. Blonde, icy and remote, dressed in tight fetishistic costumes, contrasted against men with physical or psychological handicaps, and in the end, the victims of humiliation. Hitchcock denied that he ever said that actors should be treated like cattle. Um, that's a famous quote of his. Ultimately, where it comes from was uh, on the set of the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith back in 1941. Uh, Carol Lombard, as a prank, brought three cows to the set bearing name tags of like the three stars of the movie as kind of this joke of like, ha ha ha, we're just cattle for you to like shepherd around. Despite Hitchcock having a reputation today as being kind of like anti-actor. Uh, he just didn't like the method actors who yeah. would like go off script because he, he structures these things so specifically. Exactly. Um, you know, 
to counter that idea of him as being anti-actor, you have to look at the fact that several actors worked with Hitchcock again and again and again. Um, and yes, his true difficulty was with the method style that emerged in the 1950s because the improvisational, you know, what's my motivation kind of style didn't work with his very like strictly planned manner of directing. Hitchcock carefully scripted, planned, and storyboarded all of his films. He didn't do alternate angles. He would do alternate takes to very timing and things like that. Um, he also tended to shoot his scripts in chronological order, mm. which did lead him to frequently go over schedule and over budget, despite the fact that everything was carefully planned, um, simply because the whole reason you don't shoot movies in chronological order is to maximize efficiency. So you don't have to keep coming back to the same location over and over again. Hitchcock liked to be part of every stage of his productions. He would consult with composers on the score and even the artists on the posters to ensure that they communicated his accurate intent for the film's perception by the public. You know, he didn't want to have the AIP situation of like the big monster on the poster that isn't actually in the movie kind of mm, thing. Yeah. After Alma Reville and Joan Harrison, Hitchcock's third most important female collaborator was Peggy Robertson, who became Hitchcock's secretary when Joan kind of moved up the ranks to being like a producer. Uh, until eventually Robertson, too, became an important part of his production staff during the shooting of Vertigo. Hitchcock was looking for new material for his next project. Uh, he was really wary of the ideas of studios uh, and the demands of stars. He had been taking notice of the success of the films of William Castle, such as Macabre and House on Haunted Hill, these low-budget films with catchy gimmicks and big box office. And he was looking to make something in imitation of those films, but on a larger scale. Hitchcock once told Truffaut that, like, you should be trying to make movies that make a lot of money because if they make a lot of money, that means a lot of people saw them, which means that like you were able to affect a large audience with what you were doing, right? That your mm -hmm. craft was important to a larger number of people. Paramount had Hitchcock under contract uh, at this time to make a film called No Bail for the Judge. Uh, which was supposed to star Audrey Hepburn, Lawrence Harvey, and John Williams. And uh, John Williams? Uh, the John Williams who played the detective in Dial M for Murder, not the John Williams <laughs> who did the score for Star Wars. Okay, I got really confused. Ultimately, Hepburn left the film when she became pregnant, and without Hepburn being attached to the movie, Hitchcock kind of lost interest in the concept. So he was like looking for new ideas. And that's when Peggy Robertson uh, brought the novel Psycho to Hitchcock's attention after reading a positive review of it in the New York Times. So Sarah, what can you tell us about the novel that this film is based on? Well, the novel was written by a guy named Robert Block. He was born in Chicago in uh, 1917. And I think he could be best described as kind of like a, an apprentice to H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. So according to Block, his first introduction to horror was sneaking out at eight years old to go see the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. 
apparently when like the mask is revealed or like his face is revealed and the mask gets taken off, uh, he was like so scared and had nightmares for two years. Hitchcock was also a big fan of the silent Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. Block was an artist, a writer, and an avid reader, and he had a big soft spot for the German horror of the 1920s and 30s. And then in 1927, when he's 10, Mm. he discovered Weird Tales, the pulp anthology magazine, and in particular, H.P. Lovecraft. The high school he went to had its own, like, literary paper publishing. Okay. So his first story was published there. It's called The Thing. It has nothing to do with the... Joseph Campbell story? Yeah, Yeah. it's... uh, The Thing is Death. Mm. Um, And he was also active in his school's theater program, both as an actor and as a playwright. But the weird tales in H.P. Lovecraft kind of stuck in his brain. And his first letter to Lovecraft was in 1933, asking where he could read his earlier stories. And Lovecraft was like, here you go. Let me lend them to you. He also encouraged Block to read and write to others in the Lovecraft circle, uh, which would just be like people who were like... Yeah, like August Derleth and Robert E. Howard, those guys, yeah. Uh, Which Block did. Uh, He also wrote three tales because he tried to get his own um, stuff published into weird tales. They were all rejected, but they were eventually published in other anthology magazines like Marvel Tales and Unusual Stories. No one told Robert Block that the editors at Weird Tales didn't actually really like H.P. Lovecraft all that much. Um, When he's published into Unusual Stories and Marvel Tales, he's around 17. Wow. After graduating high school, um, he traveled to go visit August Derleth, as you mentioned, um, one of the folks in the Lovecraft circle. And while visiting Derleth, he visited the publishing house Arkham House. Mm-hmm. Um, he continued traveling and he would meet other members of the Lovecraft circle, the editor of Weird Tales, just all these people. So imagine like an 18 or 19 year old coming to your door and being like, oh boy, I'm just so happy to be here. Yeah, totally. This is my 18 year old voice. On the other hand, like, good on Block, because, like, if there was something that prevented, like, Lovecraft from gaining greater success, it was probably his unwillingness to leave the house. When Lovecraft died in 1937, Block was greatly affected, but it also kind of lines up to when he began writing outside of Lovecraftian dark fantasy and into sci-fi, and eventually creating a style all his own. He enjoyed the unknowable Lovecraftian horrors, but he also was greatly interested in psychology and how the most horrific monsters could be among us with no idea about what someone is capable of uh, and what could set them off. A premise he'd return to often first appeared in Weird Tales in 1943 called Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, uh, where Ripper is an immortal who is killing people for human sacrifice to extend his life this was adapted to radio and into a television episode for the anthology series thriller in 1961 and uh as ben is looking at me um it might sound familiar because it was also adapted into star trek's wolf in the fold episode in 1967 i think he wrote like three episodes of star trek yes he wrote wolf in the fold and he would write two other episodes cat's paw and what are little girls made of 
So Bloch's interest in dark fantasy and horror and murder were very intensely tied to the idea of like psychology and like someone's like interior psyche. And all this can kind of be summed up as the psyche being like the biggest source of horror and danger. Uh, He once said that um, like the best source of fear would be a mass murderer living undetected and unsuspected in a small town. Mm. Which, uh, you know, case in point is seen in his novel Psycho, published in 1959. Now Psycho's character, Norman Bates, has a lot in common with a serial killer who was caught in 1957 just a few towns over from where Block lived. Trigger warning for bad times. (laughs) (laughs) Violence and disturbing content ahead. Very disturbing. The killer, Ed Gein, was born in 1906 and raised in the town with his brother Henry and his mother Augusta. Uh, His mother was very religious uh, and kind of hammered home that the world is full of sin. There's inherent sinful nature of women and very puritanical viewpoint on the world ed was kept isolated on a farm growing up um but as an adult he was considered a reliable handyman and a babysitter he was a very devoted son to his mother and when she died in 1945 he would say how he was alone in the world on an august day in 1957 the hardware store owner bernice warden disappeared the last receipt in her store was for antifreeze, which her son remembered Ed Gein coming in for the night before, saying, yes, I'll be back in the morning for antifreeze. So while the police went to Gein's farm to find him not there, they started looking around, and they found Bernice decapitated, upside down, split open like she was being butchered, in the barn. In the house, they found human bones, skulls on Ed's bedposts, a wastebasket made of human skin, skin-covered cushions, skin-covered lamps, skull bowls, a corset made from a woman's torso, leggings made of skin, face masks, nine vulva in a box. Face masks made of human faces. Yes. And many other disembodied lips, noses, fingers. This is not the full list. Yeah. It's fucking a lot. Gein was arrested. And he claimed that he was in a daze-like state uh, when he murdered Bernice. Um, He said that he would often go into a daze-like state and find himself in the graveyard where he would go basically grave robbing. And that's where he found all this paraphernalia. And he would be digging up female corpses that would resemble his mother. Charged with Warden's death, Ed Gein admitted to another murder uh mary hogan um who had been missing since 1954 unfortunately that confession was deemed inadmissible because the county sheriff art schley physically assaulted gain in custody um everyone kind of points to the sheriff being overwhelmed with all of this stuff and that being why he assaulted him the trial was in 1957 and gain was considered insane After going through psychoanalysis, they determined that he had schizophrenia and was unfit for trial. However, that changed in 1968, and it was decided that he was fit for trial. In 1958, so the year after he was arrested, his house was going up for auction. 
the remains that had been found inside had been cataloged and then properly disposed of. Mm. But the house was still there and the farm itself, and it went up for auction. But the night before the auction, a fire destroyed it. And there's no real conclusive determination of what caused the fire, but I will say that um, Bernice Warden's son was fire chief, so maybe they just couldn't get there in time. Probably for the best, really. Probably for the best. It's also it's also probably worth saying that, like, Gein's defense or, like, explanation for the stuff in his house was, like, I dug up corpses, but, like, I think a lot of people have generally assumed or suspected that, like, he killed a lot more women than the one we know and the one he confessed to. Yeah, no, he's suspected to have killed at least nine other people. Yeah. But Block... He has said on different occasions that there's no relationship or inspiration between Ed Gein and Norman Bates. However, later, he would say that there was like a loose inspiration. When he has said that there's a loose inspiration, um, his explanation is that uh, he was nearing the end of the writing process when Ed Gein had been arrested and the news hit the newspapers. So he includes like a line near the end of the novel, but then... Other times he's been like, no, Norman Bates came fully from my own imagination. So you be the judge. I mean, there are like elements of Norman Bates that overlap with Ed Gein. I think the movie probably enhanced a lot of those things as well. Yes, because that's 1960. It's now been like three years since Ed Gein. That knowledge has disseminated. Uh, More than likely Hitchcock would have known about it in the very least. So... Yeah, even if it's just like visually inspired, yeah. I will say that in 1962, Block wrote a true crime article cataloging Gein's case for a uh, magazine anthology called Crime and Punishments. It's called The Shambles of Ed Gein. You can find it online. I read it. It's not a fun time, (sighs) unless maybe you like true crime. Um, But I think it borders on fiction and nonfiction because it is not unbiased Hmm. it is very much biased sure regardless of whether ed gein's case sparked baits in block's head or not the insane killer with an edible complex if not body dysmorphia skinning their victims and collecting human remains has infiltrated the cultural consciousness thoroughly in upcoming movies, there will be uh, many references to Ed Gein. Uh, just to list a few here, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's exactly what I was picturing when they were describing what they found in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, um, Buffalo Bill. Uh, you can see a direct link between his uh, body dysmorphia and Ed Gein. Um, house of a Thousand Corpses. Not to mention the several documentaries on Ed Gein alone, including... A terrible idea. The 2010 musical. Oh my God. The story of Ed Gein. Wow. Um, not in good taste, in my opinion. Wow. People can do what they like. <laughs> not everything has to be for me. But I think that's poor taste. For Block's part, his agent received a blind bid for the novel Psycho, which eventually uh, bid up to $9,500. And for Block, he's like, oh, sweet, someone in Hollywood? It's blind, so he doesn't know who's bidding on it. He's like, someone in Hollywood wants my stuff. Cool. Going to move from Wisconsin to L.A. and make a run at the movies. So in 1960, he moved. He arrived in the midst of a writer's strike. So Mm -hmm. for five months, 
he didn't work. And then when he was able to work, he went to town on writing TV scripts, including 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents from 1960 to 62. Good for him. He was very active in writing for TV, film, and fiction, including two sequels to his original Psycho novel. And he would continue to write up until his death in 1994, when he died from cancer at 77 years old. Uh, Have you read the novel, Ben? The novel Psycho? Yeah. No, I have not. It's actually, um, I've found like surprisingly difficult to get a hold of. Oh. Like I don't see copies of it turn up in used bookstores and stuff as often as you would think. Mm. So yeah, I've, I've never actually read the book. Okay. From what I can tell, it is pretty similar to the movie. However, I think because it's a, a novel, you have to handle the twists a little differently. Yes. Um, but I believe the twists are still there. In the novel, Norman Bates runs a hotel with his mother, who is a mean-tempered and puritanical woman. Uh, they are in the middle of a heated argument when a guest named Mary Crane arrives. In the novel, we learn that she is on the run after stealing around $40,000 so that her boyfriend Sam can pay off his debts and they can get married and start a new life. Mary agrees to have dinner with Norman, but she overhears Mrs. Bates going through a jealous rage, yelling, I'll kill the bitch! Um, But they manage to go for dinner, uh, and Mary suggests to Norman that his mother go into a mental institution. Norman declines, says like, well, we all go crazy sometimes. And so Mary heads to bed, um, but she resolves to return the money to kind of not end up like this situation that's with Bates. That night, she is attacked and beheaded. Norman awakes from kind of a drunk stupor in the morning and discovers her body and believes that his mother killed her. And so he's like, I guess I have to go to the police. He has a nightmare about his mom um, basically getting sucked into quicksand. And so he's like, no, I'm going to cover this up. I I can't live without my mother. Uh, So he uh, disposes of her body, of her car, all of that into the nearby swamp. Meanwhile, Mary's sister, Lila, with Sam, are looking for Mary, and um, they run into private investigator Milton, who's looking for the money, but, you know, all working towards the same goal. When Milton arrives at the hotel, uh, he thinks it's suspicious that Norman will not let him speak to his mother. And Norman claims that Mary stayed one night and then left the next morning. Suspicious about all this, Milton tries to enter the house uh, undetected, and he is killed by a razor by um, a mysterious figure who is implied to be the same who killed Mary. Lila and Sam head to the nearby town looking for Milton, and they learn that Mrs. Bates has actually been dead for years. She died by poisoning, kind of a suicide poisoning, with her and her lover. Um, They also learn that for a time after her death, Norman was at a menstrual institution. They head back to the motel, and Lila secretly investigates the house. She finds weird books and symbols on the occult. Norman is with Sam, and Sam asks Norman, like, you know, I thought your mother was dead. And he says, no, she was only pretending to be dead. She communicated with me while I was in the asylum. He knocks out Sam and then rushes back to the house, just as Lila is finding a mummified Mrs. Bates in the cellar. Then she is attacked by Norman, who is dressed up as his mother, but Sam comes in just in time to stop him. 
Police begin dredging the swamp for Mary and her car, and they, they do find those, and they also find Milton. Uh, there's concern in the town over what else they would find in the swamp, but they decide not to dredge the whole thing. Sam also learns that Norman and his mother were totally codependent on each other, and eventually Norman became a cross-dresser to impersonate his mother. The word that they use in the novel is transvestite, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know if that's the language we will have in the movie. When Norman's mother met Joe and they began seeing each other, Norman was very jealous and actually poisoned them both. Um, Out of guilt for this matricide, he developed an alternate personality. And so when Norman would get drunk, the personality would take over. Um, Norman, you know, is taken into custody. He's sent back to the mental institution. And there the novel ends with the mother personality completely taking over Norman claiming that Norman did all of these murders uh, and that she wouldn't harm a fly. Um, I guess after the movie, I'll be able to speak to how similar things were, but I think at least in broad strokes, it's It's, pretty similar. It's very similar. I'll actually talk a bit about what was changed in the writing of the film. So, uh, you know, no spoilers, but the person who blind bought the novel for... $9,500 was Alfred Hitchcock. (laughs) Um, Peggy Robertson had read this very positive review of the book in the New York times. And then she read the book itself. Uh, She, she brought the book to Hitchcock's attention. He read it. And so then they brought it to Paramount um, to be like, Hey, what if I did this movie instead of no bail for the judge? Uh, And Paramount had actually already rejected the book as unsuitable for film adaptation. I think there's like, you know, a quote where Hitchcock had like asked the head of the studio, like, what don't you like about it? And they were like, literally everything. <laughs> like, there's literally nothing about this that can make an acceptable motion picture. Uh, so Hitchcock then offered to do it on a much smaller budget than usual. And, you know, you have to remember, like, his last movie cost $5 million and had Cary Grant hanging off the nose of Mount Rushmore and stuff. He offered to do it with the crew of his television series instead of his usual feature film crew. Um, But Paramount was like, no, 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 no. Like, we really can't do it even on the lower budget because um, all of our sound stages and backlots are actually in use right now. Uh, There's no availability for you to shoot. So Hitchcock decided to buy the rights to the novel himself for the 9500. Then he put up $800,000 of his own money to produce the movie arranged to shoot it at Universal International's sound stages and backlots, use his TV crew, uh, kind of almost as a challenge to himself as well, of like, can I shoot a movie the way they shoot TV? Um, and also like trying to almost consciously imitate the B-movie styles of these cheaper, schlocky William Castle movies. Mm-hmm. It's a real gamble. Like he's putting his hire like all of his own money on this yes and the deal he offered paramount was hitchcock would take a 60 percent stake in the film instead of getting paid um his usual fee at this time was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. if paramount would distribute so hitchcock's like i'm spending my own money i'm shooting it on someone else's land uh we're using the tv crew we're doing it for 800k I'm not going to get paid. I'm just going to take a percentage on these terms. Will you distribute? And Paramount agreed, uh, though Joan Harrison thought this was a terrible idea. Um, yeah, that's a huge gamble. Absolutely. 
The first draft of the screenplay was written by James P. Cavanaugh, who had written 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents up to this time. And uh, he really impressed Joan Harrison. So she had recommended him to Hitchcock to write the movie. Peggy Robertson felt that the resulting script was dull and Hitchcock felt it was too much like a television episode. Um, but while a new writer was brought in for the second draft, a lot of Kavanaugh's work and dialogue in the first act of the movie, um, ending with the shower scene, remains in the film. Uh, the sort of big change that Kavanaugh made, um, and this was like in consultation with Hitchcock, right, was structurally. In the novel, we start with Norman Bates and we see a lot of the novel through Norman Bates's POV. And it's only like, you know, eventually that we learn that because he's psycho, he's an unreliable narrator, right? The movie starts with Crane and follows her exclusively until she meets Norman. And so we are not with Norman's POV in the movie. So after uh, Kavanaugh was let go, uh, Hitchcock agreed to meet with pop music composer Joseph Stefano, who had written the 1959 thriller The Black Orchid. After that meeting, Hitchcock agreed to give Stefano a shot at writing the script. Stefano mostly followed the book and kept a lot of Kavanaugh's additions, but he found the character of Norman Bates to be unsympathetic and a little too obvious. Um, Norman in the book is middle-aged, he's overweight, he's balding, he's kind of unpleasant and sweaty and like not fun to be around. He has all these books on the occult on his bookshelf. He looks at porn. He's just like the kind of guy where it was felt like if you were following uh, Mary Crane's POV and you meet this guy... Your red flags would already be going up. Exactly. Uh, So... Stefano wanted to make the character more sympathetic, um, someone who you wouldn't suspect as easily. And so uh, Hitchcock had this idea to cast a young, sensitive actor named Anthony Perkins as Bates, which was like really against type casting for reasons I'll go into later. And that casting decision inspired Stefano to rewrite the character uh, to make his true nature more of a surprise. So he removes Bates's drunken stupors from the story, so Bates doesn't transform when drunk. He's not an alcoholic. Um, he removes the occultism. Uh, he removes the pornography. And in general, he removes a lot of the novel's cheats about Bates's mother that just wouldn't have worked on film. They work mm-hmm. when you're in his POV in a novel because of the unreliable narrator thing, but you couldn't really have them in a movie without cheating the audience too much. That's interesting. So it sounds like Norman Bates was written for Anthony Perkins, basically. Yeah, essentially. Like they rewrote the character for this so that it would maximize the twist. And that was like Hitchcock's goal with every decision he made on the movie was to maximize the shock and the twist, right? And just prune away everything that didn't work towards that goal. You know, so for maximum shock value, the decision was made to open on Mary Crane. She's renamed Marion Crane in the movie because the legal department found out there really was a Mary Crane living in Phoenix, uh, which is like the city that she's from in the book, right? Um, And then they follow uh, Marion exclusively until she meets Norman. And the romantic subplot uh, between Sam and Lila, which is very much like a breeding couple style romantic subplot and like, you're the two nice 
opposite gender people who are left by the end of the story. Um, that was really de-emphasized in the movie, uh, again, to subvert audience expectations, but also to keep focus on the plot. Um, the other change that was made was in the book. It's kind of like Sam at the end who like pieces together Norman's psychology. Um, in the movie, Stefano had been like going through therapy sessions uh, to deal with his own problematic relationship with his mother. And so he took inspiration from those therapy sessions to bring in like a psychiatrist character at the end of the movie who then explains what Norman's deal is and kind of used like the terminology that he was learning in his therapy sessions to help make this psychiatrist character seem more believable. In the novel, Sam is talking to a psychiatrist. So it's not just Sam. Okay. Yeah. What I had read was that like the psychiatrist was invented by the movie. So maybe that's wrong. After writing Psycho, Stefano was offered the job of writing Hitchcock's next two films, The Birds and Marnie, Uh, but he turned that down in order to work with his friend, Leslie Stevens, as lead writer and showrunner on the first season of The Outer Limits. Uh, Hitchcock never forgave Stefano for this. Um, this, That's the kind of guy Hitchcock is. Like, it's like, you will work for me now, and like, how dare you, (laughs) like, turn me down. Stefano was sort of the key supporter of each Outer Limits episode having a horror element in addition to the sci-fi, which kind of helped differentiate it from Twilight Zone, which had was like sci-fi fantasy and this focus on twists, but wasn't always scary. It was more like irony. Yeah. Outer Limits was always scary. And Stefano really promoted the use of like a monster in every episode to help focus the audience's fear on. Uh, And then as a very fun fact, uh, given that he wrote Psycho and a lot of Outer Limits episodes with these monsters, years later, in 1988, Stefano wrote the Star Trek Next Generation episode Skin of Evil, which sees Tasha Yar killed by the oil slick monster Armis, who's supposed to be like the embodiment of fear. As a child, that terrified me. In 1990, Stefano would return to Psycho for the made-for-TV prequel, Psycho the Beginning, Mm. uh, which is all about, like, Norman as a teen, and has, like, Olivia Hussey as his mother, and yeah. Shooting in black and white with his television crew, Hitchcock kept costs down, though the black and white also helped to minimize the effect of the gore in the film's murder scenes. Cinematographer John L. Russell had shot 75 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, um, but he had a career dating back 30 years. He had been the DOP on Orson Welles' Macbeth in 1948. Um, He also shot Man from Planet X, uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and he had worked for Welles as a camera operator on Touch of Evil. Interesting. Basically, everyone who worked on the movie was from the TV show's crew, except for three of Hitchcock's like standard feature film collaborators who he insisted on like bringing along. The first was editor George Tomasini, who began working with Hitchcock on Rear Window in 1954 and subsequently edited To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Wrong Man, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie. Other pictures edited by Tomasini include Stalag 17, I Married a Monster from Outer Space, Hmm. The Time Machine, The Misfits, Cape Fear, and In Harm's Way. Uh, Tomasini is considered one of the best 
film editors of all time. His editing of the shower scene is considered one of the best examples of the craft of editing in the medium of film. Uh, but unfortunately, he passed away of a heart attack at age 55 in 1964. The next collaborator from Hitch's features that he brought along to Psycho was Saul Bass, uh, who he brought on board to create the title sequence for Psycho, just as Bass had done for Vertigo and North by Northwest. Born in the Bronx in 1920, the son of Jewish immigrants, Bass initially worked in Hollywood designing print advertisements. Director Otto Preminger liked Bass's designs, and so he hired him to create the poster for his film Carmen Jones in 1954. Preminger was so impressed with the poster that he asked Bass to design the title sequence for the movie. Bass realized that a good title sequence could enhance a film by bringing an audience into the mood and themes of a picture before it began. His title sequence for Preminger's film The Man with the Golden Arm in 1955 created a sensation, introducing the idea of animated high-impact title sequences with kinetic typography that stood as artistic works in their own right. Before base, movie titles were typically static and kind of separate from the movie. Um, a lot of times, uh, theaters actually just projected the titles onto the curtain uh, and then like lifted the curtain when the movie proper actually began. Ultimately, base is the father of like the whole concept of the elaborate animated title sequence. So James Bond would not be the same. Right. Or like, you know, prestige television. Yeah. In some cases, critics actually felt that Bass's work outshone the films they were attached to. By 1962, it was observed that the line, the best thing about the film is the Saul Bass credits, was an overused one in film criticism. Oh, no. In 1955, artist Elaine Makatura began working with Bass as an assistant, and by 1960, they were married, and they were also co-creators of all of these title sequences. Bass also continued to create the posters for the movies he created titles for to ensure a continuity of design identity for the film. Bass's posters and titles are known for their strong typography, minimalist aesthetic, and strong graphic design. Films base created titles and or posters for include The Seven Year Itch, Vertigo, Anatomy of a Murder, North by Northwest, Spartacus, Exodus, Ocean's Eleven, West Side Story, Grand Prix, The Shining, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, and Casino. When you say Ocean's Eleven, do you mean the original? The original. Okay. Yes. Same and when with I, Cape Fear. When I say Cape Fear, I mean the remake. Okay. Yeah. In addition to the title sequence for Psycho, Bass also storyboarded the famous shower scene and the murder of Milton Arbogast. So he basically storyboarded the two murder scenes. However, while Bass's version of the shower scene was shot and used, Hitchcock didn't like the results of Bass's version of Arbogast's death and ultimately reshot it because he felt that Bass's angles telegraphed that Arbogast was about to get murdered too much, and Hitchcock wanted it to just kind of come out of nowhere. Bass's contributions to the shower scene led him to begin claiming in 1970 that he directed the scene, which is only true if you are using that word to mean something different than it normally does in a cinematic context. <laughs> like, Bass is trying to, I think, 
claim kind of ownership, like creative ownership over the scene because he did the storyboards that the movie follows. And that sequence is so praised for like its visuals and its angles and its cuts and everything. But Bass was not on set giving direction to anyone. And that's been confirmed by everyone who was on set for those days. Um, So yeah, if you want to say Bass directed the shower scene, you have to be using a different definition of the word directed. The final regular collaborator that Hitch brought on was composer Bernard Herrmann, who had previously scored The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Wrong Man, Vertigo, and North by Northwest for Hitchcock. Herman is widely regarded as one of the greatest film composers of all time. Born Maximilian Herman in 1911 in New York City, he showed great musical talent from a young age. He attended Juilliard, and he formed his own orchestra at age 20. He started working for CBS Radio in 1934, and soon he was the conductor of the CBS Symphony Orchestra, and he became known for his concert radio shows, where he introduced American audiences to a wide range of lesser-known classical music. It was at CBS Radio that Herman met Orson Welles, and became the musical director for his Mercury Theater radio plays. When Wells was awarded his film contract at RKO, he took Herman with him, and Herman created the score for Citizen Kane, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, losing to his own score for The Devil and Daniel Webster. Hilarious. Herman also worked on The Magnificent Ambersons, for Wells, creating the score for that film. And when the film was taken away from Wells and re-edited and reshot against Wells' wishes, Herman refused to create more music for the newly shot scenes and insisted that his name be taken off the film. He also scored Jane Eyre, starring Wells. Oh, um, wonderful. He wrote an opera of Wuthering Heights, um, and he continued to innovate in his scores throughout his career, he introduced the theremin into popular consciousness with his score for The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951. Herman refused to lower his fee to work on Psycho, whereas like other, you know, these other people had like taken a pay cut to do it. Um, So instead, they lowered the music budget by going from a full orchestra to just the strings. Um, And Herman kind of wrote the score on that basis. He felt that that was like an appropriate musical equivalent to shooting in black and white rather than color. (laughs) Sure. Okay. Herman's score uses repeated motifs to maintain a threat of violence throughout the film while using the intense title music only three times within the score itself. Originally, Hitchcock had instructed that the shower scene not be scored, uh, but Herman scored it anyway. Uh, Herman had a policy of only working with directors and on films where he was kind of just allowed to score the movie as he saw fit with basically no notes. And then upon seeing the scene with the music, Hitchcock admitted that he had been wrong. And he later said that Herman's score made for about 33% of the film's effectiveness. And after hearing the music for the shower scene, he doubled Herman's salary. 
The music for the shower scene has been called the most imitated music in the history of cinema. Uh, just a few bars of it basically became synonymous with like the concept of horror or murder in movies. To increase the shock of the initial murder, which was basically like the goal of every part of this film's production, uh, Hitchcock decided that the biggest star in the picture should be the one playing Marion Crane. Um, the whole idea being that like at this time in movies, you didn't kill off your biggest star. Your biggest star was the star they're supposed to be in the whole movie. And so by putting a big star in the role of Marion, it would make her death completely unforeseen. And so Hitchcock cast Janet Lee in the part of Marion. Born Jeanette Morrison in 1927 in California, she began her acting career in kind of the craziest way I've ever heard. Oh. So in 1946, retired actress Norma Shearer, the widow of Irving Thalberg, saw a photo of 18-year-old Jeanette at a ski resort where Norma Shearer was vacationing that year and where the Morrison family had stayed the year before. Entranced by Jeanette's face, the retired first lady of MGM brought the photo to MGM talent agent Lou Wasserman and convinced MGM to give Jeanette a screen test. Wow. So imagine that, like you stay, you go to Banff for Christmas and like someone snaps a photo of you at the resort and they're like, hey, can we put this in the lobby? And you're like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then like a year later, you get like a phone call out of nowhere that's like, so... You're going to be the next movie star. Like, what? Um, so, so, <laughs> Wild. So MGM gave her acting lessons, and in 1947, she made her debut as Janet Lee in The Romance of Rosie Ridge. By 1948, she had starred in four pictures already and was being hailed as the number one glamour girl of Hollywood. She played Meg in the 1949 version of Little Women, uh, and she was also in the original version of Angels in the Outfield in 1951. She was in a lot of movies. She married actor Tony Curtis in 1951, and they had two daughters, Kelly Lee Curtis in 1956 and Jamie Lee Curtis in 1958. In her eight-year contract with MGM, she made 25 films Whoa. Uh, before leaving the studio for Universal, where her husband was under contract. Her fifth film after the move was Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, uh, where she plays Charlton Heston's wife um, and also gets like harassed by people in a motel. Um, and Just don't go to motels, I guess, girl. And of course, Touch of Evil was marred by studio interference. Um, her film The Vikings, which also starred her husband, was a huge box office hit in 1958. Um, so in other words, by 1960, Janet Lee was an experienced popular actress of 33 years old. So she's a name. People know who Janet Lee is. Uh, for Psycho, Lee agreed to take a quarter of her usual fee. So she was only paid $25,000 for this film, basically taking that pay cut in order to be in the film and get to work with Hitchcock. She was Hitch's first and only choice for the role. Nice. So coming back to Hitchcock's choice to cast Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, um, that was also geared to increase the surprise, as I mentioned, by portraying the character of Bates as awkward, soft-spoken, a little bit of a nerd, someone the audience could sympathize with. Perkins at the time was considered a romantic matinee idol, uh, though Psycho would change all of that. So 
trigger warning for Perkins' life story, it gets a little depressing at times. Mm. Born in 1932 in Manhattan, he was the son of actor Osgood Perkins, um, who you may know best from the um, original 1930s version of Scarface. Okay. He's the gangster who Scarface, like, steals his girlfriend from. Okay. And so because Perkins was this actor, um, this, like, very popular character actor, he was frequently absent during his son's childhood. This led to Perkins becoming extremely close to his mother, to the point where Anthony felt jealous of his father when his father would come and actually be at home because of the time his father got to spend with his mother, which was then time his mother was not spending with him. As a child, he actually wished his father was dead so that his mother would only spend time with him. And then when Anthony was five, his father died of a heart attack. And young Anthony was racked with guilt, believing that he had caused his father's death. After the death of his father, Perkins' mother began a lesbian relationship with playwright Michaela O'Hara. And she also began to sexually abuse Anthony. Mm. Um, Basically, she didn't ever touch his genitalia, but she pretty much touched him everywhere else all the time. So uh, Tony began acting out and rebelling Uh, which led his mother to send him away to a boarding school where he was picked on for his stutter and his lack of athleticism. You know, Tony was kind of like a beanpole kid. Desperate for a relationship with the father he never really knew, uh, Tony began acting in Summerstock because, like, that was the only real connection with his dad he could create. To try and overcome his status as an outsider among the jocks at school, he took up stage magic and piano. At age 16, while acting, he developed his first crush on a boy. Lacking the grades to go to Harvard, Perkins attended the uh, Christian Rollins College, um, where Perkins' homosexuality began to burgeon. However, at the time, it did make him ostracized by the other students and by the faculty. There were exceptions. Um, A young Fred Rogers let Perkins play his piano and was Perkins' friend, which he really appreciated. And the theater professor saved Perkins from being expelled after a large number of homosexual students were all expelled from the school at once. On summer vacation uh, from school, Perkins headed to California to try and make it in the movies. He didn't really know how to do this, despite having like the actor dad connection that he could have leaned on. So what he actually ended up doing was hanging around the door of the casting department at MGM every day. Uh, to the point where people would be like, oh yeah, that kid who hangs around the door, get him to fetch donuts for us or whatever. And finally there was a day where they were doing a screen test for this actress and they didn't have a stand in. And someone was like, oh, you know, we just need the back of someone's head. Grab that kid by the door. We'll use the back of his head. And so Perkins, this is basically supposed to be like an over the shoulder shot with the camera looking at the actress. And Perkins purposely stood directly in front of the camera. So the back of his head was all the camera could see. And then someone like called out to him and was like, hey, like kid, like move, you're blocking the shot. And Perkins turned towards camera. So his face was now on film and said, who, me? (laughs) So that the casting director at MGM would see him in the screen test. This led to Perkins winning a role in the 1953 film, The Actress, as the lead character's college love interest. Um, Perkins had actually played the part in the play 
that the movie was based on when he was doing Summerstock. The film, however, did not perform well, and it looked like Tony Perkins' career might be over just as it began. But then, Elia Kazan, who knew Perkins' father, cast him in the lead role in the Broadway show Tea and Sympathy, uh, when the original cast of that play left to go do the film adaptation. And so Perkins was brought on to play the lead role opposite Joan Fontaine. Do you know Tea and Sympathy? No, I know Joan Fontaine, though. Yeah. So Tea and Sympathy is a play about a homosexual college student who is ostracized by the other more masculine students. And so an instructor's wife uh, takes issue with the way the boy's being treated and decides to begin a gentle love affair with him to kind of bring him into the fold of heterosexuality. Okay. Perkins thought it was like the perfect role for him, basically. And the play's success uh, continued with Perkins in the role. Um, Some critics even felt Perkins was better than the original actor. And the critical acclaim that Perkins won led Hollywood to come calling. Around this time, he got drafted into the army Uh, And Perkins didn't want to be in the army, so he openly reported himself as a practicing homosexual when he reported to the draft board, which would make him, you know, ineligible for army service. And that led to Perkins suffering some sort of physical abuse at the hands of the recruitment office that he never spoke of to anyone else. On the set of his next film, Friendly Persuasion, he found friends in director William Wyler and star Gary Cooper and a boyfriend in teen idol actor Tab Hunter. Tab Hunter. Which is a name that Tab Hunter's agent came up for him. (laughs) Yeah, isn't Tab the name of like a soda drink? Uh, Tab Hunter's agent was also the same agent for Rock Hudson, (laughs) whose name was also made up by his agent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Perkins' performance in Friendly Persuasion was highly praised um, and super buzzworthy. Everyone was like, this kid's the next big thing. So Paramount Pictures put him on a seven-year contract that they invested $15 million in and basically promoted him as the last matinee idol. Okay. And after winning a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Friendly Persuasion, Tony Perkins appeared in a string of critically acclaimed film roles. Perkins was noted by his co-stars for being awkward, nervous, meek, self-effacing, yet also charming, magnetic, and earnestly likable. Basically, anyone who wasn't a homophobe really liked Tony Perkins. He frequently found that his female co-stars fell in love with him and developed these big crushes and would like invite him back to their trailers for oh, no. rendezvous. And Perkins always had to turn them down like every single time. It made him a little bit uncomfortable. Um, he also won the affection of the gossip columnists, Um, like Hedda Hopper, uh, who felt an almost like motherly need to protect him, which kept stories about him and Tab Hunter out of the papers, Um, instead filling them with Paramount supplied stories of how Perkins kept having romantic trysts with his female co-stars, stories which really embarrassed Perkins. However, many people felt that his boyish, gangly, like, aw shucks, who me persona was also an act. And a lot of people have said over the years that they felt that they never really knew the real Tony Perkins at all. I mean, I think that's fair given his background. Like 
you're wanting to kind of protect yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't think that means that he's harboring a deep secret mm. or, or is like a complete like psycho or something like that. Like I know becomes the idea of him after this movie. Yeah. I mean, his big secret was that he was gay and he wasn't really good at keeping it secret. Yeah. Um, Perkins starred in nine films for Paramount as they tried to build his image as a romantic teen idol in roles that attempted to, you know, emphasize his masculinity. Like this guy was a string bean, but they kept giving him shirtless scenes. Um, (laughs) They also... You also keep saying teen idol. How old is he at this point? So he'd be 28 when he shot Psycho. Okay. So he's in his like mid-20s at this period of his career. When I say teen idol, I mean an idol for teens. Yeah, no, I just wanted to make sure. Sure. Um, They even did things like they had him record pop song singles and stuff. Oh, no. Um, Perkins' contract let him take Broadway roles he was interested in between movies. Um, So he got to kind of stretch his dramatic acting that way because a lot of the roles Paramount was wanting to put him in were like, you know, these romantic lead parts that weren't really challenging acting wise. Um, However, while Perkins could choose those plays, he was not allowed to choose his own films, which meant that he lost out on several roles that he like really wanted. Um, The two most notable are Joe in Some Like It Hot, the role that went to Tony Curtis and Tony in West Side Story Um, because Paramount on the one hand, like they were trying to keep him away from roles that would make him look fruity, basically. Um, and on the other, they were trying to kind of control him and keep him from these roles he really wanted as a way to try to force him to break up with Tab Hunter. Um, mm-hmm. The head of Paramount was not very friendly to homosexuals. Uh, did not like the fact that Tony Perkins was gay. Was like, hey, we're spending a lot of money trying to make you like the the idol of all these teen girls. Like, can you please stop? Finally, the studio succeeded in breaking up the relationship basically as part of the deal to allow Perkins to appear in Psycho because it was so off his image that they were trying to build for him, right? It's like, we're trying to say that this is a guy that teen girls can have a crush on. And here's this movie where it's like, no, actually, he's going to murder you in the shower. He's fucked up. Um, And Perkins so wanted to like stretch his dramatic muscles and do some real acting in a real part in a film um, that this was kind of the, the devil's bargain that they got out of him. And, you know, part of this deal as well was letting Perkins take the reduced salary Mm -hmm. of only $40,000 to appear in the movie, which was way less than what he was getting paid the rest of the time. Uh, As a side note, soon after Psycho was released and was this, you know, big, huge, massive hit, spoiler alert, uh, Perkins bought out his Paramount contract and stopped working for them. For the role of Lila Crane, Hitchcock cast the actress he had originally wanted for Vertigo, Vera Miles. Born in 1929 in Oklahoma, Vera Miles grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and she was Miss Kansas in 1948. She moved to L.A. in 1949 and began appearing in small roles uh, across film and TV. She would later joke about this period as, I was dropped by every studio. (laughs) She played Jill opposite Gordon Scott as Tarzan in Tarzan's Hidden Jungle in 1955 and ended up marrying Scott in 1956, uh, her second husband. 
She appeared in the classic Western The Searchers as Jeff Hunter's romantic interest, and then appeared in Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. And it was after that film that she signed a five-year contract with Hitchcock, who promoted her as being like his big discovery to replace Gene Kelly. And he started up this like publicity engine to be like, this is the next big Hitchcock star. She appeared in the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and then she was meant to star in Vertigo. And then she got pregnant and couldn't be in it and had to be replaced by Kim Novak, disappointing Hitchcock immensely. And so when Vertigo became this critical disappointment, you know, Hitchcock was trying to figure out like, why? Why didn't the movie work? And ultimately the answer he settled on was because I had to replace Vera Miles with Kim Novak. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true because then you'd think the movie wouldn't have resonated with later audiences yeah, as well. Yeah, that's the thing is like ultimately people have looked back at Vertigo and been like, this is Hitchcock's masterpiece. This is one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, and so I think the reason critics responded to it poorly at the time was they just weren't ready for a movie like that Yeah, at that time. And it, it had nothing to do with Kim Novak. Um but here he was, you know, using Vera Miles for Psycho. So, and like in what is actually the female lead, like the movie is set up to trick you into thinking Janet Lee is the female lead, but really it's Vera Miles. So while he did resent Miles, he clearly still wanted to use her in stuff. Um, however, Psycho would actually be her last Hitchcock project and she would move on to other things after this film. Filming for Psycho started on November 11th, 1959, and ended February 1st, 1960. Whoa. So, you know, thinking about all these movies we've been watching recently that have been like, it was shot in five days. Like, yes, the budget on Psycho was way lower than Hitchcock was used to. Although, like, I think $800,000 is still more than, like, any Roger Corman movie we've watched oh, up till now. absolutely. Like, He's done stuff on 200 k Yeah, but, like, the shooting schedule was very relaxed. Um, in fact, Psycho shot with, like, 10-hour days that always ended at 6 p.m. Like, it did not shoot long days. This was not about, like, let's shoot five 16-hour days to get the whole movie done quick. Like, this was, no, 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 no. Let's take our time. Shoot this at a nice pace. Because, basically, Hitchcock didn't like long days because they meant he couldn't go to dinner and that was the highlight of Hitchcock's day, was going to his favorite restaurants for dinner. So, uh, yeah, it was like these really breezy days. And the vast majority of the film was shot on 50 millimeter lenses, um, which mimic the field of view of the human eye. So that would have been a typical lens for him? Yes, but like very specifically, Psycho doesn't really use anything else except for like wide shots, establishing shots, that kind of thing. Contrary to Hitchcock's reputation, uh, he actually allowed Perkins and Lee to improvise a lot, so long as those improvisations did not require moving the camera or take them off their marks or eye lines. So, like, Perkins improvised the idea that Norman Bates eats, like, kettle corn throughout scenes and things like this. The famous shower scene, shot from December 17th to December 23rd, 1959, so that's, that's six a long days. shower. Yeah. Hitchcock took six days to film a scene and like Roger Corman shoots a whole movie in that time, right? Uh, the shower scene consists of 78 shots and 52 cuts in around three minutes. 
Various tricks were used in order to suggest more nudity and violence than actually shows up on screen. Lee wore body stockings and pasties, and in wide shots, a body double was used. Despite the impression of nudity and violence that's created by the quick editing, only one shot shows the knife and Lee's abdomen at the same time. Uh, you never actually see like her get really stabbed, like there's no effect shot of her being stabbed. Chocolate syrup was used for blood in the scene because in black and white it looks more like blood than stage blood does. And a knife stabbing a melon was used for the sounds of the stabbing. During editing, Alma Reville noticed that Lee swallows in a shot after her character is supposed to be dead. Uh, so the shot was re-edited uh, in some tricksy ways to remove this. After Lee saw the finished scene, she stopped taking showers. Uh, and indeed, Hitchcock's whole intent with the scene was to demonstrate to audiences just how vulnerable you are when you're in the shower. The role of Norma Bates, um, the mother in the film, was created by using three different voice actors mixed together to create the voice. Virginia Gregg, Jeanette Nolan, and Paul Jasmine. It was actually Anthony Perkins' idea that one of the three voices be male. Wholly different additional actresses were then used to play mother on screen, uh, depending on the shot. And Hitchcock had to choose his shots very carefully so the audience wouldn't start getting suspicious about like why we aren't seeing mother's face. Um, Perkins actually never plays mother until the final reveal. And Perkins was actually really like strict about wanting that um, because like in his mind, like they are different characters. Hitchcock intended to push boundaries with Psycho. Uh, he had identified that audiences were increasingly fed up with the sanitized view of reality presented by the production code. And the films of Otto Preminger and Billy Wilder had been weakening the code for some time by now. So Hitch felt emboldened to kind of just push things further. The film opens with an adulterous unmarried couple in the same bed together with Marion in a bra. Uh, though Hitch actually would have preferred her to be topless. He felt it was unrealistic for her to be in a bra in that scene. But, you know, he knew that in 1960, topless was still too far for U.S. audiences. The film's transgressive gender subject matter was a lot for a mainstream movie at the time. And there was also the film's distinction of being the first appearance of a flushing toilet in any American film or TV show. Mm -hmm. Big taboo at the time. The censors fought with Hitchcock over the opening scene and the shower scene, of course. Looking at the opening, they insisted it was too racy. And looking at the shower scene, um, a bunch of the censors insisted that they could see Janet Lee's breasts and that the scene had to be reshot. So Hitchcock waited a few days and then resubmitted the shower scene, completely unchanged. And the censors who thought they could see boobs before were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you took them out. And the censors who didn't see boobs before now could swear that they did see boobs. Well, <laughs> so he achieved his goal of intimating nudity. Right, without actually having it. Um, so Hitch said that if they let him keep the shower scene, he would reshoot the opening to be less racy. And they could even come on set to be there for the shoot to make sure everything was above board. 
The censors didn't show up for the reshoots, so Hitch didn't reshoot the scene and kept the opening as is. The only change he made to appease censors was in the shower scene by removing one shot of Janet Lee's body double where you could see the body double's butt. Hitchcock believed that the key to the movie was its two twists, Marion's unexpected death and mother's true identity. So to this end, he went way out of his way to protect the movie from being spoiled. He ordered Peggy Robertson to buy up every copy of the novel that hadn't already been sold, which makes first edition copies of Psycho really hard to come by. What did she do with them? I don't know. But the idea was to basically try and prevent anyone who hadn't read the book yet from getting to read the book. He made the cast and crew swear oaths to reveal nothing. He did all of the publicity for the movie himself, forbidding the cast from doing promotional interviews about the movie. The movie's trailer is just Hitch giving a tour of the sets while almost revealing things about the story before stopping himself. Notably, revealing things that are not related to those two big things. Yes. Critics were not allowed advanced press screenings of the movie and had to go see it with the general public, uh, again, to try and maintain the secrecy of the twists for as long as possible. This created a lot of resentment towards the film from film critics. So, taking a page from Diabolique's book, Hitchcock insisted on a policy of no late admissions to Psycho. Highly unusual at the time. As a reminder, at this time, the common way that movies were shown was uh, you didn't have multiplexes, so your theater only had one screen. And basically, everything that was showing was on like one looped reel. So you had the movie, you had the newsreels, you had the cartoons, you had the shorts, you had the B picture, whatever. And that reel just played on repeat and you could just come up to the box office, buy a ticket, and go sit down. And maybe you would be somewhere in the middle of the B picture or the cartoons or somewhere in the A picture. And typically what a lot of people would do is just stay until they reached the part where they came in. And then they would leave. Hitchcock was like, absolutely fucking not for Psycho. The movie starts at these showtimes. And you have to show up at those showtimes. And then people are admitted. And then the doors are closed and no one's admitted until the next showtime. Audiences had to see the picture from the beginning so that the effect of the twist would be preserved. But also because Hitchcock knew that people were paying tickets to see Janet Lee because he was promoting her as the star. And if they came in late and she wasn't in the movie as far as they knew, they would feel cheated. Theater owners heavily objected to this. They hated this policy for about one day. And then after that first day, there were lineups around the block mm -hmm. for the movie because you couldn't just walk in and it created this demand and this and curiosity. And you don't reserve seats like you have to get in early to get your prime seat. Right. And then like the doors open and the door closes. And if you didn't get in because now the theater's full, well, you're in line until the next screening. And... uh wow, did this show the effectiveness of this publicity gimmick uh, to the point where like, this is just how people watch movies now. You're expected to show up at the beginning of the movie and watch till the end and then leave. You want to know how successful this particular publicity gimmick was? Very. Psycho. Okay, so brief reminder. North by Northwest cost $4.5 million, made 
$9.8 million. Psycho cost 800K. It made $50 million. Uh, it was the second highest grossing film of 1960 behind Spartacus. It was Paramount's most successful film of the year. And you may remember that Hitchcock had a 60% share in the film. He made over $15 million himself personally on this movie, you know, rather than normally what he would make as the director, which was 250000 Yeah. So this was a huge deal. Yes. This was a massive hit. Uh, this changed a lot of things about movies, about what was acceptable content-wise in movies, about what audiences wanted, about how audiences saw movies. I think that spoiler culture that exists today about movies, like the thing where Marvel makes their actors sign NDAs and you're only allowed to read the scenes that you're in and all of that like starts with Psycho. Yeah, you can definitely see a seed being planted. Critical reviews were mixed at release, partially because critics were pissed off that they had to go see the movie with normies and at specific times of the day. Um, the movie was criticized for looking cheap. Um, there was this feeling that like, you know, Hitchcock's most recent movie had essentially been like the equivalent of a James Bond movie. And now he was doing this like purposely cheap B movie looking thing. Um, the movie was criticized basically for being beneath Alfred Hitchcock. It was criticized for its sex and violence. It was criticized for being morally objectionable, offensive. Nearly all the British critics considered it to be in bad taste. Uh, one British critic resigned her position after watching the film. <laughs> if this, it was her name, Pauline Kale. No. If this is where movies are going, I don't want any part of it. Oh my goodness. But in the same way that Hitchcock had predicted that audiences were ready for, you know, a little something more, he also had predicted the direction that film criticism was moving, which in the early 60s, critics were starting to be a little more psychoanalytic in their reviews of movies, analyzing films in deeper ways than just like, oh, did I like it or not? And so as the film's financial success exploded so too did the critical tide change. Uh, for example, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times had given the movie like a pretty mixed review when it came out, but then included the film on his year-end top 10 list. The performances of Anthony Perkins and Janet Leigh were praised, as was the film's manipulation of the audience for maximum shock and suspense. It was considered Hitchcock's best film yet, uh, it was certainly his most financially successful. Um, it changed his reputation, as we talked about, from a director of thrillers to a director of horror. The film was praised for the sophistication of its filmmaking technique, something that had gone overlooked at first due to the criticisms of the subject matter and the cheapness. But as people analyzed it more, people realized like how clever it was at doing what it was doing. The effect of Psycho's success was to inspire a wave of imitators that ultimately resulted in a whole new subgenre of horror emerging, the slasher film. So Hitch sold the rights to Psycho and his TV show to MCA Universal in exchange for 150,000 shares of the company, making him the third largest shareholder at Universal and thus his own boss. CBS bought the television rights for Psycho for $450,000. And before the picture aired to TV 
It was resubmitted to the Motion Picture Association of America in 1968 when they introduced the new ratings system. In order for the film to secure an M rating, uh, which was the equivalent of what we now call PG, um, they wanted an M rating instead of an R rating so the film could show on TV. In order to get that M rating, a few cuts were made throughout the film. Less stabs, we don't see Marion take her bra off, a few things like that throughout. And in this edited form, that is how the film was shown when it was re-released to theaters in 1968, when it was shown on TV in 1970, when it was released on home video in 1981. In fact, that edited form is how the movie's been seen pretty much exclusively until 2015, when a 4K restoration was done and the uncut version finally resurfaced. And that uncut version was not seen on home video until the 4K release in 2020. Wow. So you are going to be seeing Psycho for the first time. I'm going to be seeing the uncut version of Psycho for the first time. Very cool. Psycho was nominated for Best Director. Janet Lee was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, the film was also nominated for Best Black and White Art Direction and Best Black and White Cinematography. It didn't win any of those, but it was nominated for all of them. It's nice to be recognized. The film is frequently ranked as one of the greatest horror movies of all time. It is also frequently ranked as one of the greatest movies of all time. It inspired three sequels, a prequel, a remake, a prequel TV series, and a movie dramatizing the making of the movie. Psycho has been released on home video a whole fucking lot of times. Uh, it's available on 4K and Blu-ray on its own and in various collections from Universal Home Video. It's also available to rent online from Apple TV, Google Play, Microsoft, YouTube, and Amazon. How are we watching it, though? We are watching the film uh, on its new 4K Home Video Blu-ray release uh, in the uncut version. Um, I don't really know in terms of like the streaming and the online rentals, like whether you're getting the new uncut version or not. I suspect that if you're seeing it in HD, it's probably the standard home video version. But if you're seeing it in 4K online, it's probably the new uncut version. Okay. Uh, well, folks, thank you for sticking around. <laughs> um, it's It's been a long intro, but you're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Psycho from 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock from 1960. Sarah, your first time seeing Psycho? All the way through, yep. What did you think? So, what the things that I had seen before, mm -hmm. I think can be summarized from the moment that Marion arrives to the hotel mm. to uh, after Norman finishes cleaning up. Gotcha. And puts the car in the swamp. Gotcha. Um, so you saw the best part of the movie. <laughs> I guess you could put it that way. I had also seen the final shot mm. of Bates in the jail cell. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, so that's the extent of what I had seen before. Seeing the whole thing, I think it's obvious that there's a lot of talent in filmmaking going on here behind, I, whether it's behind the camera, whether it's in the editing studio, like your most common phrase in the context setting was like the greatest blank to ever blank. Sure. And this movie holds up in terms of the talent that you see on screen. Mm-hmm. What did you think seeing this for the, um, who knows how many times, but this is your first time seeing the restoration. Sure, yeah. So there wasn't really a lot that was new. I think there was a little bit more dialogue in the scene between Marion and Sam at the start. Um, Just like a little bit more about how he has an ex-wife. Then the shot where we see Marion take her bra off is new. Although to be honest, I didn't clock it as new because I think I always just assumed it was there, but we never actually see it like come off uh, the way that we do in the uncut version. The first thing like I really noticed as like kind of jarring uh, was the shot with all the blood on Norman's hands. um, That was good. That he walks over to the sink and washes off. I could tell that was new because some of the new like newer shots still have a little bit of graininess. Yeah, they don't look as in good condition as like the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, And then the other bit that was new um, is in the versions of the movie that I've seen, Arbogast gets stabbed once and then falls down the stairs. And what was new here was Mother going to the bottom of the stairs and continuing to stab him over Mm -hmm. and over after. And that's it, really. So... Still basically the same movie as ever. What do you think of seeing it now that you've seen every horror movie made up to this point? Sure. I think that's a big question. Um, Before we get into that, I think it's worth saying that you gave a plot summary of the book. And then I sort of talked about what the movie changed. And while there's like a lot of difference in the emphasis, emphasis, yeah an experience of reading the book versus watching the movie in terms of just like a basic plot synopsis. They're so close together that I don't think there's like a big value in doing another plot summary of the movie at this point, like we usually do. Yeah, that's fair. I will say, um, we gave a few content warnings in the first half. I will say like probably good to have a general content warning for like the rest of this episode. Sure. I do think that Psycho feels different from everything we've seen so far in a way that makes it feel hard to classify. Yeah. Like, is it a thriller? Is it horror? Is it like just like a crime movie? Like, what category does this fall into? It's, you know, similar to Peeping Tom, but, you know, ultimately Psycho is horror because everybody decided it was you know what i mean like everybody looked at this movie and was like this is a horror movie and have treated it as such ever since but watching the whole genre up to now and then seeing psycho psycho feels really different it doesn't even really feel like the proto slashers we've seen up to this point like peeping tom feels more like a 1980s slasher movie than psycho does Because Psycho feels closer to, like, true crime. 
I I would agree actually with that. I would say that like I don't know if I agree with what you're saying about this is horror because everyone was saying it was horror because sure. Hitchcock set out to make a William Castle well, specifically William Castle, but I think a little bit of Roger Corman mm. kind of horror movie when he did this. Right. And I think he achieved that. Oh yeah, and like, you know, audiences scream during the shower scene, they scream when we see mother's corpse. Like this is a horror movie, not just because people are saying it is. I think it's a horror movie from start to finish for how it manages the tension, the specific moments when that tension is released. And I think the reason why it feels different is because Early on in like, let's say like the 40s or mm-hmm. so, we saw a divergence of the horror genre into the film noir stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was some interesting early stuff where it was horror, but it had cinematography inspired by film noir. So it was almost like a bit of an Ouroboros because film noir was so influenced by German expressionist visuals. Um, and film noir kind of developed its own subgenres of thrillers and spy thrillers and crime movies and gangster movies. Mm-hmm. And some of those lessons are now being brought into the horror genre again. Yeah, totally. Um, you can see Hitchcock's background in crime dramas. You can see his background in German expressionism, all these things coming back around. I agree with you on this entirely. And I think the other thing too that like psycho is horror in the sense that its dna is in so much horror after this but psycho's dna comes from different genres than horror like the most like horror thing about psycho on the face of it is like the old dark house on the hill But like so much of Psycho feels more like it's coming from detective movies and true crime movies and stuff like that. And I think part of why it feels so different is that there's nothing fantastical about it. It's very grounded in like hard facts of like it opens with like we're on December 11th at 2.30 p.m. Like it feels very true crime. And I think that's also why I felt a little bit of frustration at the end of the movie, because the movie, you know, uh, Sam stops Norman from stabbing Lila, and then we fade, mm-hmm. crossfade into, okay, we're at the sheriff's office, the psychologist comes in and says, like, here's what he's confessed to, and then the psychologist is like, here's what's going on with the, his psyche. Yeah. I felt frustrated with that because... It was reminiscent of the old mystery, mystery? house of mystery kind exactly. of exactly. Yeah, where it was like, well, here's what's going on. Remember that ape that escaped a week ago? Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, it felt reminiscent of that, but at the same time, I fully acknowledge that for the audience of this time, it is absolutely necessary. Oh, totally. For a modern audience, we don't need that because we got CSI, we got Law and Order, um, the multiple. Law and orders, and especially with the special victims unit, which oh, feels very sure. pertinent here. Like we don't need that because Psycho has proliferated mm-hmm. all of these things. All of that is to say, I've left that last scene feeling a little frustrated, especially because 
the movie feels like it stops. But I think Hitchcock is doing a thing where it's like this guy delivering the psychological stuff very matter-of-factly. That's meant to juxtapose with the idea of like someone hearing for the first time, yeah, he became his mother. Right. I think there's a lot going on there. I do want to throw out a fun fact that the reason the movie begins on December the 11th uh, is because Hitchcock sent like second unit into like Phoenix to like shoot a bunch of um, stuff around the city so that they could use it for the rear projection for a bunch of scenes. Right. Mm. And like get accurate uh, shots of the city and all that. And because they were shooting the movie in December, uh, some of those shots, like the shot where her boss crosses the street um, have Christmas decorations in the background. Oh, and Hitchcock no. was like, oh, shit. And he's like, all right, we'll just throw up a title card that says that's December. And that's the only reason, um, which is just a funny story to me. It's funny how that ends up tying in to the general feel of the movie, though. Right. So I want to I wanna talk about some of the things you said because you've hit on a ton of interesting points. Yeah, and I kind of digressed from your original point as no, well. That, yeah, that's totally fine. I think we're going to be a little all over the place here. I do want to say, before I get too deep, if you're listening to this, so Sarah and I have both taken film studies in university. I have a degree in film studies, all of which is to say there's a lot of intentional elements all throughout Psycho. Mm-hmm. It's actually, compared to the movies we've been watching up to now, pretty incredible to watch a movie with such intentionality in oh, every shot. Absolutely. So many subtleties that if the audience isn't paying attention, they'll miss. Because like the audience has been taught that they don't necessarily need to pay attention when someone's walking down the street. Yeah. But in Psycho, you know, opposed to a lot of the movies we've watched up to now, you can break down exactly what the movie is doing and why in every single shot. You can feel the way that Hitchcock is playing the audience like a fiddle, um, the way that like the camera lingers on the money to keep trying to make you think that the money is important at all when it is not and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff in Psycho that we could talk about for a really long time about like the way that Norman's taxidermy hobby, like foreshadows the mother reveal, but also he only taxidermies birds, birds and her last name is crane. And also birds is like a slang term for women. And like, he only stuffs birds and like, you know, and what does Norman looking through the peephole while she undress means about like voyeurism and film and like, are we being made to like identify with Norman in that moment? And does that make us complicit in Marion's death? And there's a lot of stuff like that we could be talking about. And the reason I bring up Sarah and I's education in film studies is that at least for me, a lot of that stuff is real surface level shit. It, it feels like stuff that people have talked about for ages yes and i kind of want to not talk about it exactly like so i do apologize for anyone who's like itching for ben and mai's take on like what some things that seems surface level kind of means because i kind of want to go deeper yeah and i also want to have this discussion be in the context of scream scene and what we talk about on this podcast and so there's a lot to talk about in psycho and if we don't hit like a particular favorite topic of yours there's just so much out there on this movie 
I will um, say, if you do want us to talk about a specific thing that we miss, email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com and we'll chat with you. Yeah, or like hit an ask in our Tumblr box or something like that. So intentionality. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the movie's doing all this stuff on purpose. And so there's a lot you could talk about with every shot about why is this? Why is this? And you have answers like it's there. Like one of my favorites is um, why does the uh, why is Arbogast's death kind of shot in the way it is where we're like at the top of the stairs looking down and we watch him like fall in almost like a Zolly kind of way down the stairs. Zolly? Zoom dolly, uh, a oh, vertigo shot, okay. um, which is a type of shot that Hitchcock invented for vertigo two years before this, where you zoom and you dolly track at the same time so that um, the character who's in the center of the frame seems to remain the same size and distance in the frame as the environment like shifts around them. And that's kind of how Arbogast's death is shot as he falls down the stairs. Like he's stationary and the environment moves around him and we're shooting him from above. And it's like, that's such a weird way to shoot that. Why are we shooting it that way? And the way we're, the reason we're shooting it that way is because if we're shooting from above for the whole scene and we remain that way for the whole scene, we don't get suspicious that we don't see mother's face. Cause we're watching it from like above looking down. So that's what I'm talking about with like the intentionality, how deep you can go into every shot of this movie, but back to why this movie feels so different. Mm-hmm. So a long time ago in the early thirties, there were these Warner brothers horror movies, uh, Dr. X and mystery, of the wax museum. And in those episodes, we talked about how that was like a major divergence in horror because up till then, Horror movies were set in the past in Europe and involved like spooks and scarums and Draculas and such. And these were set like in the modern day in America. Yes. And that was a big change at the time. But ultimately, those movies still involve synthetic flesh and like weird mad mad scientists and like weird. I guess mad artist. Right. Same thing as far as movies are concerned. And Going forward from there, like whether movies were gothic horror or not, they haven't really ever been rooted in reality. Even stuff like The Spiral Staircase um, or other films that like don't really have fantastical elements, they're still not like, they don't have a vibe of reality, we'll say it that way. Even Peeping Tom, Mm. like his backstory is that his dad was like a fear scientist and his murder weapon is this weird, like, tripod gimmick thing. Like, it is about this guy's psychosis, and it's set in a, you know, realistic world, but he's still, like, one step removed from being a Batman villain. I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I will say that with The Spiral Staircase, it's because it has one foot in gothic. Mm -hmm. Gothic always never quite feels like reality. Mm -hmm. A a major part of that is the aesthetic. I'm thinking about like the old dark house is a great example for why gothic, even if it seems set in uh, contemporary times, it feels like you've come to a place that time has forgotten. Right. Old dark house people have come and they're stepping out of reality into this fantastical old dark house. And I think what's interesting about Psycho is like, it's got Gothic elements. It's got the California Gothic house and it's got like the secret of like his mother and like what's going on. And those are pretty Gothic elements, 
but the motel kind of serves as this like liminal space between the gothic and the real world. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Peeping Tom ultimately, even though it's very well observed about the psychosis of the lead character, doesn't quite feel like, oh, this could happen to me. And that's what Psycho feels like. Yeah. It doesn't care about who you are, where you are at in your own story. Right. What trap you that's been laid out for yourself that you've fallen into. You've come to the wrong liminal space. Yes. Marion misses a fork in the road and drives out of her story and into someone else's and dies for it. But it's like, this feels like all of this could happen right? In a much more visceral way than any of the horror movies we've had up to now. And I think that's a big part of why it feels so different um, from everything and why it feels like almost hard to classify. I think the other reason why it feels different is, I don't know if this is a lesson that Hitchcock is bringing from thrillers, uh, because we have not been watching contemporary thrillers to this time, but It holds you so close to the violence. Mm. When, let's take the shower scene as case in point. You are right there in the shower as she's being stabbed. It holds you so close when, like, Norman has blood on his hands from moving the body. Even, like, I think the most distant murder is Milton's. Mm. Um, But even then, uh, the effect of him feeling stationary while the environment moves around him, we're stuck with him in his moment of violence. You know, I've watched that scene with many different people over the years. And more than once, I've watched that scene with someone who laughs when he falls down the stairs because they think the visual looks goofy. Um, I mean, it looks jarring, but it's a jarring moment for the character. You know what's weird about that visual? For me, at least, it's somehow a perfect visual representation that's what it feels like when i trip and fall yeah like that's what falling feels like that imagery well that's why he developed it for vertigo right exactly that oh shit weightlessness right so yeah i think you're right about like the immediacy of the violence i think i don't know if that's really thriller being brought into horror maybe but i think it's it's really hitchcock deciding to stop dancing around the issue as it were with the violence. The shower scene is one of the best examples I think of like less is more suggestive filmmaking because people talk about that a lot with regards to horror movies. Like, you know, don't show everything, like just suggest things. But the thing about the shower scene is it actually shows us a lot yeah. Like we know Marion's naked. We know that's a big fucking knife. We know she's getting stabbed. There's the blood. Um, we know it's someone who has gray hair and a bun. Right. We don't see the knife entering into her body. No. But, you know, so there's no like prosthetics. There's no squibs. There's no effects here. But there's this idea of like that less is more filmmaking. And sometimes it can get taken too far to where the the movie sucks. Um, so like, you know, there could be a version of this movie where the camera, I don't know, stays looking at like the shower head the whole time while we just hear the murder happening. 
And that's, no, 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 that sucks. That's lame. Like you have to show something. And yeah, it's sometimes a mistake to show everything, but you got to show us something. And the shower scene's a really masterful example of how to ride that line, I think. I think it's particularly impressive because you said that, you know, it was completely storyboarded and it was mm-hmm. storyboarded by someone who is a basically a graphic designer. Right. What better way to try to figure out how to tell a three minute sequence through visuals alone mm-hmm. than with a graphic designer storyboarding mm-hmm. everything. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a really good moment. Um, I think you're right in saying that it's kind of like the peak of the movie. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that is only because we know the twist. Sure. So the moment when Lila stumbles upon mummified mother, we know what's coming. Um, but everything that's happening in that sequence is done to really emphasize the shock and horror with like the light going, her mm-hmm. screams, having that be the moment that Norman rushes in and then Sam rushes in. Um, it's part of why I understand why there's that crossfade to the sheriff's office because we need a breather yeah but then hitchcock still gives us a chill moment at the end with norman's face yeah absolutely um i think you're totally right in identifying the kind of anticlimactic ending that you identified as being unsatisfying earlier i think you're correct in identifying it as a chance for the audience to kind of catch their breath and like come down at the end of the movie yeah Uh, you know it's a little bit of like cinematic aftercare um, <laughs> I just remember when I saw Hereditary in the theater, it wasn't a packed theater because it was a bit after like its opening date, but there was a moment where like I saw something move and I and someone else in the theater screamed mm-hmm. and like it's at the climax of the movie and we screamed and then we also laughed a bit because we were laughing at like our reactions mm-hmm. And I imagine that being a similar experience for someone seeing Mother for the first time. Some of these moments have had the gas taken out of them because of how well-known Psycho is. The shower scene, it's hard for me to have like an emotional, visceral reaction to it anymore. I've seen it so many times. I've seen a whole documentary about it that we mentioned earlier, uh, which is a good documentary, by the way. It's called uh, 7852. But the thing about Mother's Corpse that I really noticed this time, because we've watched every horror movie ever made, is how it looks... It doesn't look like a fucking like doctor's office. Like I bought it. Yeah. 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 It like, it looks like a mummified desiccated corpse. Yeah. Like it's got the kind of wrinkly skin that's kind of stretched and, and dried out. But the thing that always gets me about it is how fucked up and dirty the back of her eye sockets look in the skull. Like it's not this like clean holes in the head skull look it's like no like you can see like kind of the the bottom of the shell of the eye socket where there's a hole that like the optic nerve goes through to the brain like it's gruesome like it's 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 gross yeah and that's really effective there's no dancing skeletons controlled by vincent price right exactly i think that structurally speaking up until marion's car goes into the swamp it's a perfect movie. (laughs) And then it kind of, unfortunately for me anyway, breaks down a little bit after that. It doesn't quite run as smoothly. And 
I do think the climax is rushed, and I do think the denouement with the psychiatrist is clumsy. I agree with you that the audiences of the time needed it because they're not as familiar with these ideas. Case in point, uh, I wanted to say that The Three Faces of Eve came out in 1957 or 58, and that was like one of the first big popularizations of the idea of disassociative identity disorder. That's how new that idea is. Before writing Psycho, Robert Block had been working on a short story that featured DID. Hmm. Um, the other thing I will say about that psychiatrist ending, so I, it's bad. Um, and it's bad because it's just like, let's sit down and get exposition thrown at you for five minutes. When I feel like more of that exposition could have been slowly doled out throughout the movie. And some of it is right when you watch the movie a second time, but like the moment where they go to the sheriff and he's like, well, you know, Norman's mother's been dead for 10 years. Like that's a really effective moment. And I think there could have been more little things spread throughout the movie like that to help kind of pave the way for that psychiatrist so that it wasn't like everything all at once. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, Hitchcock is trying to do that juxtaposition thing I mentioned, particularly because boy, is there a lot of dark humor and black humor throughout this movie Yes. In a way that like you wouldn't anticipate going in just knowing the plot beats. Norman's actually really funny. Yeah, it's great. Like he's he's supposed to be like kind of awkward and weird, but he's he's really funny. And I think some of Anthony Perkins. So like, okay, so like the actors in this movie are great, right? Like Anthony Perkins is great. Janet Lee is great. I think Perkins is MVP. Yeah. To be honest, but uh, yes, everyone is great. Janet Lee is so good that Vera Miles kind of doesn't live up to her as like our replacement protagonist. That's why she's the little sister. Right. (laughs) Um, But one of my favorite things that Perkins does is when he's like a step or two ahead of the other characters. So like when Sam and Lila show up together and they're like, Oh, Hey, like we're here to get a room and you know, uh, we're just a new married couple or whatever. Norman has this line where he's like, they're like, we want to get a room. And he's like, Oh sure. And like, doesn't do any of the banter that he did with Arbogast or Marion. And it's just this look on his face. Like he's like, yeah, I know. I fucking know what the fuck you two are. Like, and just like little moments like that where he has this kind of gleeful little grin on his face. You can hear again and again how Perkins switches from calm to anxious to dangerous in a single scene. Mm-hmm. But you don't really understand how amazing it is until you sit down and watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really cool. And I think part of what makes it so effective is because Perkins is playing so naturally like it's a very naturalistic you could almost like if i didn't know perkins's uh uh acting style you would think he was a method actor because the way that you think about method actors approaching their craft is very like well i'm going to embody this character what would this person do yeah they'd eat some popcorn here and perkins just does it though i will say (laughs) it was really hard not to see uh Andrew Garfield. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a very similar kind of style, right? Very similar. Very like 
jittery and um i think specifically andrew garfield is peter parker yes but i also uh seeing andrew garfield in interviews mm. he also just has that kind of like jittery charm yeah that perkins is bringing here with regards to your comment about method um so Ilya kazan who directed perkins on stage really early in his career in tea and sympathy had known perkins father and perkins father osgood was not method his whole life was pre method um but Ilya Kazan really respected Osgood Perkins because he was like kind of a master of technical acting like he knew how to do timing really well he knew how to throw lines to another actor really well he knew how to like be in the right place at the right time you know and kind of embody everything the character needed to be very well and Kazan wanted to find a way to meld that kind of outside in acting with the like exciting passionate unpredictability of the like inside out method acting that was becoming popular and that's what anthony perkins does mm. he's the embodiment of that attempt to weld both styles i think he does a fantastic job i kind of um i want to talk about the structure of the movie and why i think it kind of breaks down after marion's car goes in the swamp okay so obviously i like it's obvious that the first act of psycho is kind of perfect mm -hmm. and the way that it draws you in and the way that like it leads you along and especially if you didn't know the twists that were coming the fact that like oh yeah the movie is about this woman who's stolen forty thousand dollars and like oh no is that like highway patrol cop gonna catch her and like oh that was a close call at the used car lot and like all this stuff and then she gets the Bates Motel and suddenly the movie's not about her anymore. And there's a really brilliant thing that Hitchcock does where I think Hitchcock really understands what Roger Ebert once said about movies, um, which is that movies are machines for generating empathy. So when we see Marion steal this money and get into all these close calls, we don't think like, well, stealing is wrong and that cop should catch her. We think like, oh, I hope she gets out of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, you know, she gets the motel. She kind of realizes that she made a mistake. She's going to go home and return the money, uh, which, yeah, Marion, like, I don't know how you thought this plan was going to work, but it was a bad plan. And then she gets killed. And now our protagonist is Norman Bates. And we're watching him clean up the murder ostensibly to cover for his mom instead of being like oh i hope marion doesn't get caught with the money now we're like oh i hope the car goes into the swamp oh no it looks like it's not going oh i really hope it it does you're hoping that he gets away with covering for this murder and again like you're you're rooting for the criminal and it's because hitchcock is playing to like i don't know that thing when you were a kid and you stole like cookies that you weren't supposed to eat yet. And like, you're looking over your shoulder and you're hoping nobody catches you kind of thing. That feeling of like, Oh, I hope I get away with this. I agree and disagree. Mm. I agree with the stuff about Marion. I disagree about sympathies with Bates. Mm. I didn't know how long the movie would take to follow Bates cleaning mm. but it's very it's extensive yeah and I love that it does that and you're wanting him to be caught you're like 
even though you think that mother killed her, mm-hmm. because your sympathy and empathy has been with Marion, mm. you're like, what has happened? What do you mean she's dead? Right. Who's going to stop this guy? Right. And so when the car is sinking into the swamp and it stops and he goes, oh, no, you think, oh, is there a chance? And then it continues sinking and you realize that there is no chance. Interesting. So I see. Yeah, I think we're vibing on the same technique that's going on here. Mm-hmm. There's a handoff from one protagonist to the next. Yes. And for me, it's a handoff in audience sympathy as well. Because we're kind of like, oh, Norman, this poor put upon guy whose mom has put him in this difficult position and she's clearly a terrible person and all of this stuff. And I love the way that Hitchcock like has Norman like, oh, no, no, he remembered the newspaper. Oh, no, no, he remembered this. Like there's all these little things where you're thinking, is that the thing he's going to forget? And, you know, ultimately it ends up being like a piece of paper that didn't quite flush down the toilet. But where I think the movie goes wrong is when we cut to after the car goes down the swamp, Sam Loomis's hardware store. And then we're with Sam and then Lila walks in and she's looking for Marion. And like narratively, this feels very natural. It's like, this is the next step of the story logically. And Arbogast shows up and he's like, Hey, I'm also looking for this person. And then we're following Arbogast and his investigation until he gets killed. And he's kind of like our second false protagonist after Marion. And then, okay, now we're with Sam and Lila. And like, they're the final couple, uh, the breeding pair. And we're going to follow them to the end of the movie. I understand why the movie does that from a narrative perspective, as well as from like a convention perspective. But I think structurally what should have happened is we should have stayed with Norman until Arbogast comes to see him. Because the movie had established this rhythm of we stayed with Marion until we got to Norman. And I don't think we should have cut away from Norman. I think we should have stayed with Norman until he meets someone else. Sure. And then Arbacast can go back to town after talking to Norman and come to Sam and Lila and be like, I've talked to this guy. Here's what I think about him. We needed to kind of have that handoff structure continue. Except you're forgetting that Arbogast doesn't go back to town after talking to Norman. No, that's right. In my theoretical, hypothetical version of the movie, he would. And we'd have the scene where he first kind of is talking to them and we're introduced to Sam and Lila. We'd have that after in this hypothetical version. Like, that's fair. But I think the reason why Hitchcock didn't do that is because he's holding on to that twist of who Norman is. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think like that's also a little bit of a to to the film's detriment because when we covered Peeping Tom, mm-hmm. people you mentioned how critics really compared Peeping Tom and Psycho. Yes, and one of the main differences is that Peeping Tom, you are with that dude, that's it. Yeah, In Psycho, you're never really with Norman. It has that barrier. Part of it is because you're with the victims, but it creates a a distance and for me i think that's partially a mistake Mm -hmm. um we are with norman for two sections the cleaning up after the murder and then we cut back to him for just like a scene where he moves mother to the fruit cellar and it's supposed to seem like it's a conversation between him and mother and that's totally from his point of view as well 
And the thing is, is most of the novel is from Norman's point of view. And I think I understand why that was changed. I think it's a brilliant change to be with Marion instead. But I think after she's dead, we should have been with Norman until someone else showed up. That's just my feeling on it. And I think the way that the movie cuts around more after Marion is dead, to me, disrupts like the perfect flow that the movie had going. The other thing that I think is a little bit not perfect about Psycho, um, other than like we already mentioned the denouement is clunky, I think the climactic moment is a little rushed. I think like she turns that chair around, we see mom's corpse, the strings come back in, Norman comes in brandishing the knife, and honestly, we kind of have just barely time to register Norman in the dress and the wig like a second maybe before Sam comes in and tackles him to the ground and Lila's safe. Yeah. And I think it makes the picture feel like it's rushing to get to the end. It, it Sometimes when I watch this movie, it feels like Hitchcock loses interest in the movie once Marion's in the swamp. Like it feels like he's kind of rushing the rest of it sometimes because I really wish that like we had had Norman come in in the getup, brandishing the knife, and had a bit longer of like Lila being in danger from Norman and getting to register like it's Norman who's the psycho and like she's in danger from this guy. And oh wow, look at how, you know, batshit he is before she gets rescued. At this point with the movie as it is, it's almost just like an extended jump scare. Yeah. Uh, So that's always a problem I've had a little bit with the movie. I think it rushes that climax. And then because that climax is rushed, it makes the denouement feel even longer. Also, frankly, I don't know what this actor playing the psychiatrist is doing. He was like, this is my one shot to wow Hitchcock. Absolutely. Like he's coming in playing this monologue as if like he's just like the cat who swallowed the canary. Like he's coming in like... I don't know, like from a character perspective, it's like this psychiatrist has dollar signs in his eyes from the book he's going to get to write about this. But like he's he really overacts the hell out of the speech. And I get that maybe part of that is like we need to maintain the audience's interest through this long exposition thing. But it just kind of feels weird. You're just kind of like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, because he he's new. Yeah, he's here for this one scene. Um, Yeah. I had this thought when I was saying that Psycho keeps you at a distance Mm. um, compared to Peeping Tom. Right. And I think it's kind of interesting because Psycho, its attempt at voyeurism is Norman looking through that peephole. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that's how the movie kind of treats the viewer because you have a limited sense of what's going on. You can only see through this one little hole and you're separated by a wall mm-hmm. whereas peeping tom ironically with its name is much more visceral and you're right in there though i think peeping tom could have benefited by being a little closer to the violence and the way that psycho is with yes. like these extreme close-ups and all that jazz yeah actually showing what he's doing yeah absolutely and i think also Keeping Tom feels a bit more intense because the violence and the sexual gratification are explicitly linked. Mm -hmm. Whereas this movie goes out of its way to say Norman being his mom is not sexual. Okay. 
Yes. And I will say, actually, I had forgotten the little bit in this movie that addresses that. And I was actually kind of impressed with it watching it this time around where, yeah, they basically stop the explanation uh, when they get to the point where it's like, yeah, he dresses up like his mom. Someone says, oh, so, you know, basically in the language of the time, he's a transvestite. And the psychiatrist stops to be like, no, 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 no. He's not a person who wants to dress like the other gender or become the other gender for either like sexual identity or gratification purposes. Um, like Norman is not transgender is what the movie is basically stopping to tell you because Norman's becoming not a woman, but like just specifically his mom. It's he's playing dress up, not, you know, um, questioning his gender identity. And I was actually kind of impressed that the movie took the time to stop and make that distinction. But I will say the movie does make it clear that these are sexual murders in... They are jealousy. Right. They are crimes of passion that are motivated by jealousy, not I need to murder this person to get off. Sure. It's not I need to murder this person to get off. It's that I felt aroused by this person and I have so much guilt and shame attached to that that they must die now. Yes. Um, but I think the way that the movie makes it clear that these are sexually motivated murders, you know, in a different way than Peeping Tom is the way that the movie goes out of its way to show you that Norman doesn't care about the money, didn't know about the money, has nothing to do with the money. And that like really helps, I think, drive home to the audience, like the chain of events of like his arousal and the murder and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But you are right that like, it's not part of the gratification, the murder. Yeah. This started me on a weird tangent mm. of queer history. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, this movie being like, he may be psycho and he may dress up as his mother, but he's not a transvestite. Mm-hmm. Um, again, using the movie's language. And it reminded me of Ed Wood in Glen or Glenda, which right. we didn't watch for the podcast or anything, but we watched because. And in that movie, he is essentially... I may be a transvestite, but at least I'm not gay. Yes. And just feeling so like frustrated with the world at that time, frustrated with our current world about how queerness is treated and these things like homosexuality was in the DSM until like 1974. So even like Anthony Perkins, I mean, he like you talked about it in the context setting of him having to like be saved by his teacher just to not get kicked out for being gay. I do want to draw a distinction here because Ed Wood's like, Hey, I'm a transvestite, but at least I'm not gay is sort of this attempt to distance himself from something he thinks you're going to think is worse. Yeah. Whereas psycho being like, Hey, he dresses up as his mom, but he's not a transvestite is a clear attempt to say, hey, people who dress up like the other gender aren't psycho murderers, right? It's not trying to implicate the idea that like being a transvestite is worse than being a murderer. Um, It's kind of trying to do the opposite of that. Um, So I just wanted to like make that distinction kind of clear. I think that's fair. And, Um, you know, there is this weird subtextual element of like Anthony Perkins' own sexual orientation coming in. But I think the key thing about insisting that, you know, Norman is straight is because Norman's 
voyeurisms and obsessions and desire to kill these women and stuff. Um, like part of that's coming, you know, it's from the novel, it's from Ed Gein, it's from a lot of serial killers, uh, to be frank, but it's also reflecting like Hitchcock's obsessions. Like True. Hitchcock is a straight guy. And so that's what the movie's reflecting. Right. So I think it's probably for the best that the movie distances Norman from queerness. I think it's unfortunate that a lot of the imitations of Psycho and mm. things that Psycho and Ed Gein inspire in mm. pop culture don't do that. Right. Or much more. Um, Can we just say transphobic? Yeah. As like a broad term. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Like I do know, I, I do know that Silence of the Lambs has this moment where it stops and tries to be like, but you know, not all transgender people are psycho killers, but it does a way worse job of it than Psycho does because Buffalo Bill's um, gender dysphoria and, you know, transvestitism and, and stuff in that movie isn't as like integrated into like a psychology and a character the way Norman's is. It's kind of just there because they know it's going to make a mainstream audience feel icky right? That movie's trying to have its cake and eat it too by being like, no, 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 no. Like we respect transgender people, but still like use transphobia and assumed transphobia on the part of its audience to like create its like, ew kind of feeling, right? Yeah. So I was just feeling a lot of feelings about that sure. as we sat down to record. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're talking about how good this movie is, um, how intentional it is, We've critiqued a few things. One of the things, of course, about this movie and a lot of Hitchcock's movies that I really like is how well observed everything is. Like Hitchcock really tries to go out of his way to have people act like people yeah, in his movies and do the things that you would think regular people would do um, because he doesn't want the audience to be like tripped up on some weird thing where they're like, oh, that's weird. That's not how I would close a door that would distract them from like the intricate, you know, clockwork machine he's kind of got going of the plot. But like just, you know, the way that Marion acts, the way that Norman acts, it's all such like really well-observed ticks of human nature, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. which brings us to what I think is the movie's weakest element so I mentioned earlier that I think Vera Miles doesn't live up to Janet Lee. Are you going to talk about Sam? Sam. Sam does not feel like he's in the same movie. No. He's like, I am a broad-shouldered, square-jawed hardware store owner. He has a voice like he's on radio. Um, I lay the blame for Sam at the actor's feet, John Gavin. Um, I don't think Sam is bad as written, but John Gavin comes in here with his like Don Draper haircut <laughs> and like perfect suit and radio voice and just doesn't work for me. I will give full disclosure. Mm. Like, yes, absolutely agree. But he opens by complaining about the alimony he has to pay his ex-wife. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what uh, divorce laws were like in 1960, but I believe that if you have to pay alimony, it's because you had kids with that person. And you should be fucking paying for your children. Um, I think that alimony had more to do with the fact that like 
women at this time still couldn't have their own bank accounts. Sure, that's and, fair. And like couldn't open a bank account without their husband's permission and like couldn't have their own income without their husband's permission and stuff. So I think that's more of it, which also, by the way, I think goes a long way to why Marion knows that it's not great for her to be seen with a ton of money on her and how that's going to arouse suspicion. And um, there's a lot of like sociological things in Psycho that I think if you don't know anything about mid 20th century America might actually come across as weird. Like the fact that she thinks she can get away with the crime just by going to a different state. It's like, yeah, of course she does. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. Mm -hmm. There's no fax machines. Like she can just go to a different town and be like, hi, I'm Mary Samuels. And like, who the fuck's gonna check up on it? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The fact that like $40,000, like $40,000 is about $400,000 today but houses were cheaper cars were cheaper like she and sam could have turned into like middle class americans on forty thousand dollars easy in a totally new life but yeah i think there's i think there's a lot of things like that another part of like changing american society that i think comes across in psycho like there's the fact that like we're expected to be sympathetic to these guys to begin with the fact that the movie opens with like, Hey, we're meeting up in like a flop house to have sex in the middle of the afternoon. And like, these are our heroes, I think reflects a changing American society. Yeah. If a movie in the 1930s or forties would not, well, okay. Maybe pre code thirties, but still in the forties would not be able to get away with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And also, the whole backstory of the Bates Motel. Um, yeah, mother meets Joe. He convinces her to open up the motel. But like the way that the motel is, you know, off the main road because Norman keeps saying like, oh yeah, they moved the highway. So the original U.S. highway system was built in the 30s under FDR. The modern interstate highway system was built under Eisenhower like in 1956 so like that's four years yeah yeah so like what i what i mean is like there used to be all of these out of the way like mom and pop motels everywhere on the old system and then the new interstate system came in and we got like the big motel chains instead and that's like kind of a like a real world contemporary thing that like people watching psycho would be like, Oh yeah, there's tons of these places that are going out of business right now because of that. You know what I mean? Like, so there's just a lot of ways that the movie reflects changing American society at the time. Um, that is really interesting, you know, to say nothing of the way that it reflects the way movies are changing at this time. But, um, Sam Loomis sucks and not just cause he's not paying alimony. (laughs) John Gavin, just like, The thing about Sam Loomis is it's not like he doesn't look the part, but Sam Loomis needs to be a guy who, when you see his shirt off at the start of the movie, you're like, oh, I would definitely steal $40,000 for this guy. So what you're saying is he needs to be Marlon Brando. Yeah, he needs to be way hotter. (laughs) He needs to feel a little bit more dangerous. Yeah. Um, He needs to feel like a little bit scummier, I think, but in a way where you're like, yeah, but you're better than Norman. And then when like Lila comes in, I think, you know, there's a romantic subplot between them in the book that Hitchcock basically downplays into nothing. Which I agree with that decision. But at the same time, 
I think there needed to be some unspoken sexual tension between them. Like no dialogue, no subplot, but there needed to be something where like Lila shows up and meets Sam for the first time and has like a bit of a like, oh, I get it kind of moment. Like Sam needs to have some fucking screen charisma somewhere. (laughs) And, you know. John Gavin does not have that. No. um, Yeah. I think he's the weakest element in the movie. Yeah, I think um, I can get behind that. Um, I'm happy that they downplayed the subplot because I like how it keeps things very focused on Marion's disappearance. Yeah. uh, And keeps things focused on like the Bates Motel and all of that. So I'm in favor of there not really being that, but cool. I wish that Lila had been given more like i wish that vera miles had more to play than just like i'm angry that my sister is missing i mean that's understandable but like i think my issue with lila and my issue with sam are kind of the same issue which is i don't see why sam becomes the like leader of the investigation basically like because he is in the novel ben well and he's the man yeah right but like what should have happened is like lila should have shown up confronted sam And then once she figured out that like something bad had happened to Marion, like even though she's not with Sam, I think like if I was doing psycho, I'd have Lila be like, well, it's still your fault. Like it's still your fault. My sister's dead because you like got her to come out here with this money, blah, 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 blah. Like she should have resented Sam. And I think she should have gone and done a lot more on her own. The movie instead has a lot of her being like, I'm going to go out there and do the thing. And Sam being like, no, 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 I'll go out and do the thing. Right. Um, which is very frustrating. It's one of those ways that like, as psycho is charging into the modern era of cinema still has like a, a foot left in the old fashioned stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, we've alluded to it when comparing psycho to some other horror movies we've watched But let's dive in together and look at ranking. For sure. I feel very satisfied with our discussion on Psycho. As I alluded to earlier, there's a lot to talk about with this movie, but I feel like we hit what we wanted to hit. Um, Do you agree? Yeah. Great. So I think the obvious place to start is just Psycho versus Peeping Tom. Yeah. I kind of talked about, about it already, but to sum up, Um, They both have positives and negatives that help and hinder in their rankings. If you recall from our Peeping Tom discussion and when we were ranking that movie, I was tempted to put it at the new number one, Mm. but you felt Gojira was better. I felt Peeping Tom was better than Cat People, and I think Psycho has a good chance of being above Cat People, but I don't know how I feel about it going above Peeping Tom which unfortunately would like still keep it in like the f- top five, but it kind of limits how high it can go. By right. That point. Yeah. Because peeping Tom's not quite in the spot you think it should be in for sure. Yeah. Um, not to sound. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, okay. no, I get it. I totally get it. Um, the way that like sometimes the compromise spots can then like make ranking things adjacent, like weird. I don't think psycho should go any lower than number five. Like, if it's below Peeping Tom, it should just be one spot below. Like, there's no way Psycho goes below the fly. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I'd been looking at some of the ones below, and I first looked at La Diabolique at 20, because it also has, like, Mm -hmm. 
you know, a similar kind of ending pacing. And I was like, this is much better. So I knew it was going to be top 20. Um, I looked at the old dark house. I think it's really interesting to think about comparing Psycho and Old Dark House in terms of the psychologies. One of the things that we identified was the way that Old Dark House felt like 1930s Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. And of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho both take from Ed Gein. And I also, for the first time, somehow noticed that while the exteriors of the houses are very different... Um, the interiors of the house in Psycho and the house in Texas Chainsaw Massacre are basically the same floor plan. If this goes below Peeping Tom, it doesn't go any lower than one spot below. Would you agree? I would agree. And then I was looking, you know, and I think the main thing we have to establish is better or worse than Peeping Tom. But once I was like, okay, well, if it's better than Peeping Tom, how high up can it go? And at that point, I was like, Psycho is a better horror movie than Gojira. I really love that movie, but it's not 100% a horror movie. Like, it's also a sci-fi film. It's a monster movie. It's uh, a lot of stuff. And as much as Gojira is about very real things, you don't quite have that same feeling of like, well, gosh, like, I could take a wrong turn off the (laughs) highway and run into a, you know, 50-foot-tall radioactive dinosaur right like it's not quite the same thing and that made me look at like cat people and go like you know both of these movies are about psychology but norman bates's psychology like those rko val luton movies are kind of the closest we've had till now of like horror movies that tried to be set in the real world yes but they were still set in worlds where like this people can turn into cats and zombies are real. And, and there are like leopard serial killers and satanic cults and yeah, um, weird death islands. And yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Like they, they're set in the real world and the supernatural elements are ambiguous. But Irena's psychology is like, hey, when she gets aroused, she either thinks she turns into a giant cat or actually turns into a giant cat. Whereas Norman's is when Norman gets aroused, the part of his personality that represents the mother that he murdered takes over and kills the person that has aroused him. And like one of those is a lot more visceral (laughs) than the other. Yeah. And then we look above cat people and we have Jekyll and Hyde and it's like, well, you know, Jekyll and Hyde is also arguably a multiple personality story. Um, existing far before that like framework was really understood by anyone. And, you know, Jekyll Hyde talks a lot about the way that men abuse women and the way that rich men abuse their power and privilege uh, and has all these like allegories for alcoholism and so on. But again, it's dealing with its stuff through this kind of fantasy sci-fi allegory and psychos just a thing that could happen. For me... Jekyll and Hyde really hits home, mm-hmm. particularly when Hyde murders Ivy. Mm-hmm. In that scene, the murder happens behind a bed while the camera's on the other side of the room. Yeah, it's that like, what if the shower murder was just looking at the shower head the whole time thing I was yeah. talking about. And it's effective and I feel it, but the camera is not right in the shower. It's not mm-hmm. right at the top of the stairs. It's not with the victims. 
um, it still tries to keep a level of distance. Mm -hmm. That's what I think about when comparing these two movies. And it's distance from the violence while keeping us closer to the murderer. Like we're fully sympathetic with Jekyll through the whole movie, even when he's doing awful things, because we understand that like it's Hyde doing these things and he can't control it. And doesn't that make him such a poor, pitiful guy? Whereas like the thing about Norman is... He's pitiful. Yes. And it's not him who's doing it. It's mother. And, you know, he can't control it and these sorts of things, except that the event that set off this is not, hey, I'm a championing scientist trying to discover the nature of good and evil. It's I killed my mom and her boyfriend. Like he made that choice before any of the other stuff. Yes. And... He purposefully gives Marion the key to the cabin next door where he can look at her. Yes. He goes to give her like number two or number three, stops and grabs number one. Yes. So if the idea is that like him being aroused leads to um, he set he set himself up to fail. He set yeah. himself and Marion up to fail. That's such a good point, Sarah. And is also such a great example of, again, the intentionality of every part of this movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. And so ultimately, like, Norman is worse. And we aren't, you know, I, I made the argument that we're being asked to sympathize with Norman. Maybe not sympathize is actually the wrong word. I made the argument we were meant to empathize with Norman, which is different than sympathizing with him. We empathize with him in the sense of, like, can he get away with this? Can he wriggle his way out of this? What a poor guy, you know, that kind of thing. But we don't really sympathize with him because the movie does make it clear this guy is trouble. And even the like end narration and the psychiatrist trying to be like, yeah, Norman's gone. It's just mother. The, the way internal monologue of the mother. Right. The internal monologue of the mother. And we're hearing her voice. But like, I think it's really important that we're hearing her voice while looking at Anthony Perkins face the whole time and the acting that Perkins is doing with his face in that scene is so good yes and so creepy and of course I do have to mention the element crossfade. the the crossfade from him to the car getting pulled out of the swamp where at the crossfade moment they managed to sneak in a frame of a skull of over mother's Norman's face. face yes exactly it's so well done it's so well done but I think it really establishes like Norman's a bad guy. Like he's always been the bad guy. Yeah. You know, mother, what, what mother is Norman. Like mother's not his real mother. Mother is still Norman. Yeah. It's a version of, yeah. It's what he pictures as mother. Yes. Which is terrifying that he pictures his mother as this conniving and evil. But, like how, bad was he abused by mother growing up that he would be like, yes, a mother would want to murder someone. So I agree with you about like how bad was his mother? How bad was he abused? But I also think it's really key that in this movie, we never meet the real Norma Bates. There is no flashbacks. There's no reality. We only see the version of Norma Bates that exists in 
Norman's mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really key because the versions of people that we keep in our minds aren't them. We don't have access to other people's internality. And so I think what's really important about that is just me trying to kind of emphasize my point that like, even when he's mother, he's still Norman because he's just Norman's version of mother. So it sounds like we are both leading to the new number one. So yeah, I was, I was kind of just, yeah, my range here being like, I could see this going at the top. um, If we think it's better than peeping Tom. And if we think it's worse than peeping Tom, it can't go any lower than right below. But I I do want to like firmly basically come down on, is it better than peeping Tom? Yes, no. And why? Uh, I say yes, because it holds you close to the violence. I think peeping Tom had the opportunity to be better, um, particularly in uh, you calling out that the ending could have been from the camera's point of view rather than proscenium. I think it could have done better. And with some of those minor polishings, it would be better than Psycho. But I think Psycho is better. I think a key thing about Psycho... So I found Peeping Tom really disturbing. Yeah. When we watched it, I don't really get the same reaction out of Psycho. And part of that is the way that, like, I'm, you know, six feet under in terms of my, like, uh, exposure to, like, true crime stuff like have seen psycho have seen all the Hannibal Lecter movies and the TV show. And I've read Helter Skelter and like, you know what I mean? Like none of this really has the power to shock me anymore. But the other thing with peeping Tom is there's a bias there where I was really strongly affected by peeping Tom because of the way that peeping Tom equates voyeurism and you know this sort of psychosexual murdering of women with directing and directing actresses and being an audience member watching actresses and the fact that like those are experiences I relate to and that makes me feel bad about the way that the movie equates it to these more negative emotions and the thing is and, and it was, you know, we talked about it in that episode that we figured that was the reason why film critics reacted so badly to it. And so there's a certain thing that you have to kind of do sometimes when you're a critic where you need to kind of like course correct, like find baseline again, because your reactions to movies have become so informed by the fact that you're a critic who's seen a million movies and analyzing movies is what you do. And you kind of have to correct back to the baseline of like normal people where like, I don't think someone who isn't movie obsessed would be quite as disturbed by peeping Tom as someone who is. Whereas I think anybody in 1960 America could be disturbed by psycho, right? Yeah. Okay. So are we, are we doing it? I think so. All right. Entering the list at the new number one. What, what episode number is this, Sarah? This is 295. <laughs> wow. Entering the list at the new number one, knocking down Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, which has been at the top of the list since episode 27, is Psycho. From 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. 
If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, as always, you can reach us on our website, screamscenepodcast.com. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out over Tumblr through our ask box. Should Psycho be included in Universal's box sets of Inner Sanctum Mysteries? Discuss with us on our... (laughs) And this and any other Psycho topic that you want to talk about uh, through those venues. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can support the show by leaving us a rating or a review, subscribing to the show through our RSS feed, or just telling a friend about this cool show where you listen to them talk about Psycho for several hours. If you really like what we do here and want to support us, uh, please head on over to Patreon, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and your support helps us uh, pay our hosting fees and you know take the time uh, to do these episodes and deliver this wonderful show to all of you, and we really appreciate it. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. Well, Ben, this was a big week. Mm-hmm. What are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are watching the classic... The epitome of the evil possessed children subgenre. We're watching Village of the Damned. Oh, I thought that was a 90s movie. No, you're thinking of the remake. Oh, I thought it was original. Yeah, no, the original is from 1960 and it came out in the UK the same day that Psycho came out in the US. Oh, oh dear. Okay, well, uh, great. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.